people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. assassination of the president of the united states is it real or just a movie what are you doing just thinking the fucking secret service is going to throw you and the film in jail as soon as they find out about this but somewhere the plot started twisting that's when i knew he wasn't talking about making a movie there are an awful lot of angry people out there one little push that could happen he just wants me to help him shoot the president i like it or does it have to be the president? All you need is a gun and the willingness to exchange your life for his. He keeps interviewing every kind of radical he can find. He found some real dangerous people. How come I feel like this ain't no movie no more, man? But uh, somebody forgot to tell me. Well, I have to know now. Are you in or are you out? When do I uh, get to see the rest of the script? The rest of the script is up here. How'd you like to make the film of a lifetime? There's so much power in that spot. Never get out alive. If he suspected I knew, what would stop him from killing me too? We agreed to make this real or not to make it at all. I'm starting to get scared. Relax, just a move. Sometimes a line between fantasy and reality is only an illusion. I made Duggo a killer. He's my creation. Arthur, what would it take for you to give this whole thing up? I said let's go. Move it. I don't think so. Oh my god. Secret service! You still don't trust me, do you? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Andras Jones. It's just a movie. Also joining us is Mr. Paul Cronin. Our generation became might have beens. On this episode, we are discussing Paul Williams's The November Men. Released in 1993, the film tells the story of Arthur Gwendolyn, a filmmaker who gets the idea of crafting a film around the very real assassination of George H.W. Bush. He enlists his partner and production manager, Elizabeth, and his friend and technical advisor, Vincent Duggo. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please track down this movie and come on back after you have. We will still be here. So, Andres, you brought this title to my attention, so please tell me, when was the first time you saw The November Men? And what did you think? I discovered the November Men on a Trolla videotape in my local video store in Olympia in the early, uh, mid 1990s, like probably around 1995. And I loved it. It blew my mind. It's one of those back in video store days or record store days when you find something that you have no knowledge of at all, no preconceptions, and it just, you feel like I, this is my movie now. And that's what it was. I carried it with me for years 
every time we would meet film fans, people were really film obsessives. I would bring it up. No one had ever seen it. No one had ever heard of it. I thought I got to the point where I was just thinking, I'm insane that I, this film doesn't even exist. And I, I love it so much. And then years later, when I started doing the World is Wrong podcast with my friend, Brian Connolly, who probably sold me the videotape, actually, from Video One in Olympia, I knew we had to do an episode about it. And when we did our episode, it was around the time of the trial of the Chicago 7 coming out, which is a film that I really, like, it's a very well-made film, but a, a real insult to the history that it's covering. And so we ended up doing the November men as a sort of like, instead of watching this piece of shit, Trial the Chicago seven, you should watch the November men, which really captures the spirit of that time in a different way. At the time I wanted to track down Paul Williams, but I had no idea how to find him and finding Paul Williams, the director, as we'll get into is a little bit difficult because there are so many different Paul Williamses and he has not been very good at promoting himself or keeping himself online. But I was able to find the screenwriter, James Andronica, who plays Duggo in the film. And I ended up conducting two very long interviews with them, over three hour interviews that I called down to about two minutes and I mean to about two hours. And after that, James trusted me enough to give me Paul Williams' email. And when I reached out to him, so I reached out to him and he was living in the Brazilian jungles and he liked the podcast that we did about the November men. And he was like, Hey, I've written a memoir. Would you like to read it? And he sent it to me and I loved it. I was, it blew my mind. And he was like, can you help me get it published? I was like, I'd love to, maybe I could help you make a podcast about these stories. That's about the time when our other guest here came into the picture of the Paul Williams story and actually did help him get his book published, which is now called Harvard Hollywood Hitmen and Holy Men. And when I toss it over to you, Paul. I'm going to start the other end. I'll start with Paul, I think. Andra started with November Men and thread through to Paul. But for me, it all starts with Paul. Maybe four years ago, contacting him through the late Ed Pressman. I think I'd been in touch with Ed's son about something, or a friend of mine knew Ed's son, so I got in touch with him and got in touch with Ed, and Ed put me in touch with Paul. And what so intrigued me about Paul was that I was on the back end of a very long research project about the student protest movement at the end of the 1960s, a historical documentary that yielded a lot of research and a film and a book. And I got intrigued by the notion of, well, what are the fictional representations of this history? Right. What other feature films made, probably at the time, more or less, to cash in on it kind of thing? What were the films made at the time? And Paul Williams' The Revolutionary with John Voigt, made in 1970 or released in 1970. I've watched a lot of them a lot. And I think I can say that Paul's The Revolutionary is just the most intriguing, the most dignified, the most rigorous, the most interesting. So. Through that, I contacted Paul, and as just like with Andras, a very interesting guy, very genial, friendly guy, got to talking, told him what I was doing, sent me the manuscript of his book, thought it was great, did some light polishing on it, sent it to Patrick McGilligan, who then forwarded it to the University of Kentucky Press, and the rest is history. I did a, some minor polishing of the text with Paul. He got it. He's a writer, good writer. Really, it was a great book. 
So from there, I discovered the other films. Starts with the revolutionary. November Men is a wild film. Very interesting piece of work that we could, I hope we will, we shall unpack a little bit today. Yeah, this was definitely a first time watch for me. And just again, Andras, thank you for bringing this one to my attention because I don't think I'd ever heard of it before, either under this title or it was released under a different title over in the UK, I believe. And that's the version that you can find out on archive.org, though. You've generously uploaded the version with the trauma trailers, which is just amazing to see those trailers from all those years ago. The Sergeant Kabuki man was fantastic. Staggering. That, oh, Staggering man, stuff. That weird uh, dance thing that they're doing at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Bizarro stuff. The housewife, pterodactyl housewife. Yes. What the hell? I never yeah. heard of that. Was, with Beverly D'Angelo? What the hell? Like you just have to wonder how many other films like this are there out there that we've missed. And a film like this is going to get launched in the midst of all that. I, it makes sense, and at the same time, I feel like it sticks out. So I, that's just my taste. Yes, I, I watched it this afternoon, and considering the speed with which it was made and the cost in which it, with which it was made, it really is a very good film. It really does hang together very beautifully as a film, and was always trying to wrong foot you. Has a great sense of humor, the film. I mean, Andres, I'm curious to know, because Jimmy Andronica gets the screenwriting credit, but was the idea fundamentally Paul's? The idea was Paul's, but the screenplay was James's. There were some speeches that Paul wrote, and he, has, he actually complains that it, it, Jimmy made me cut out a bunch of my best speeches. So obviously, there were, the division of labor gave James the right to cut Paul's speeches. So it's a, it's his script. And those two had worked together quite a few times before, correct? On Nunzio. And then again, later on Mirage. And they were really good friends and were a part of a Meisner acting class that John Voigt started in LA. And then David Proval continued when John Voigt got too busy to keep teaching. And they were in that class. And it sounds like that was an amazing class. Vince D'Onofrio was in that class, Andy Garcia later. I should say the most recent season of the World is Wrong podcast is based upon Paul's memoir. It's called The Other Paul Williams. And in that, he there's a whole episode where he talks about what a big influence the Meisner acting technique was on him and his filmmaking and how it led him to want to be more of an actor in his films than just a director. You didn't say, Mike, what did you think of this film? I, I'm dying to hear. I thought it was really interesting the way that they put it together and just to Paul's point, the way that they wrong foot you through this whole thing. There are a couple things where I was like, okay, this one, the CIA agent or government agent, the, uh, the guy who comes to them lying and says that he's got AIDS and then it comes back later on with a different story. But he's been taping them the whole time. I'm just like, this guy's obviously a government agent. So there are some pretty obvious things in here. But at the same time, they just keep pulling the rug out from under you. And just the relationship between, I don't know if I'm going to be using the actors' names or the characters' names. So I guess let's stick with the characters right now. Arthur, who is played by Paul Williams, and Elizabeth, who's played by Leslie Bevis. The relationship between those two also keeps you guessing because... 
is she going to the government agents on purpose? Did she, should she not have, is she trying to sell him out? Why it, it, does she forgive him? Is he really sleeping with this waitress? Does she forgive him for that? Just all of these things where I'm like, what is their relationship? And then you never know what's going on with Duggo, the James Andronica character, where you're just like, this guy is really out there. Has he snapped or is he just going through some stuff? He is a lifelong Marine who's been out for a while and really wants to get back to it. And I think he doesn't know how to live his life unless he's in the service or has a greater purpose than himself. I wish it looked better because that VHS of the trauma one would look a lot better, but it feels like this movie's just been forgotten and I really don't think it should have. And it's tough to find too. We talked a little bit about that, but I just kept coming up with that Pierce Brosnan film, the November man over and over again, even if I was quoting November men and putting in Paul Williams and putting in 93 it just kept taking me to Pierce Brosnan, but finally managed to get a hold of it. It's almost like there's a conspiracy. Almost. To keep Paul, will it keep us from Paul Williams? I think you say that, I think, did I hear you right? You said that the other characters, we're not quite sure you know, who they are or what they're really thinking, maybe. But the character that Paul plays, Arthur Gwendolyn, that's the real hinge of this, in a sense. It's as if Arthur doesn't himself know whether he's really making a film, whether he's making a film or whether he really wants to call a president. So there's this very interesting kind of creative ambiguity going on because you just never quite know who the fuck this guy is because everyone's telling him he doesn't want to, that he wants to kill the president. And he says, what are you talking about? I'm just making a film. You don't really believe him. And then Paul does all this wrong footing bit. And I wrote down this great line. So this guy that turns out to be a secret service agent who apparently is making a documentary the making of and paul says when he hires him he says oh he hires the guy and he says he's going to make a movie about the making of our movie which is a wild lie really it's not as if he's going to make a movie about our movie it's just he's going to make a movie about so this is the meta level of this film which just goes into comic effect at the end two or three times he just keeps on doing it right he keeps on giving us another layer of this thing. It's very funny. It becomes very funny. And I enjoy that about Paul's films. He has a great sense of humor, Paul. And if you've spent any time with him, Paul likes to laugh. And I should tell you, so there, there's just like little production deals that I, details that I got from James and Paul. And one of them that's interesting, that guy who plays that agent, I always thought he was a pretty compelling actor. But the only reason he's in the film is because he basically ran this product there was a production space that he gave paul and james a deal on and when they were auditioning he came in and did an audition and his audition piece was amazing he says amazing and at that point they were planning on just shooting it on video but they had shot several things on video and there and then they showed it to people like no you should really do this on film It's it's better than video and then when they had to go back and redo it they said he never hit that level again. And they, according to James, at least they were like, oh, he's not a very, he's a very, he's a really bad actor. But I, Jim, I think he's fantastic. I think he's very funny and very compelling. And I love the scene with him and the hot dog and the one-armed man. And that, that's a great little bit of weird business that I love. Yeah, there are some strange details in this movie. And 
it just adds to the overall picture of the oddity of this. And it really does all work for me. There are times where I'm just like, okay, that's a little clunky. That's a little rough. But overall, I was pretty happy watching this. And I just really like the idea of stealing all this footage of the real George H.W. Bush and then wrapping that as we are going to murder this person. Look at how close we can get to the president. And I love that opening title card where it's, this was made within the letter of the law as of 1992. As of 2001, when the Patriot Act passed, this movie is illegal now. Back then, they were okay. They were covered legally making this, which is wild. The low-budgetness of it actually lends... If this were a bigger-budget film, you'd know what it was. But when you're watching it as a low-budget film, you're like, did they actually try and kill the president in 1992? Because it looks like... If you told me that these people were arrested trying to actually do it i would most i could be can i could believe it because it is so the whole film is stolen and ratty around the edges like yeah it's a sneaky film that's a really good word for it It is sneaky i fear you're underestimating the sneakiness sir and like i said i was not familiar with this one at all i knew of some of paul's work like you mentioned the revolutionary dealing or the berkeley to boston 40 brick lost bag blues and out of it from 69 i think i had heard of nunzio before but after that i had not heard of any of the movies that he had done and november man is right sorry november men is right there in 93 no i had never heard of this film before and yeah i agree that rattiness does help make this feel more real. And I I appreciate it's not going for mockumentary, fake documentary, any of that kind of stuff, but there are a little bit of elements with that, but really this is told much more as a narrative. It just, it really works. It gives me a similar sensation that I get from F for fake. The movie is, it's just playing tricks with you in a way that it's almost like the film can't quite hold its own joke. The joke is spilling out over the sides and asking you to do this extra work. But I can't think of many films that have that quality of this director is pushing themselves and us and using the medium, like the messiness, or in uh, in this case, the messiness with... I can think also Wells is using a different kind of messiness with his editing to break our brains in a way, which... I love. And if you could think of any other films that are like that and point that you think of that are like that, point me in the direction of them because I, that, I think that is my cinematic take. I know that there are some comedians or more comedic folks that will make fake documentaries that you really think are real, which I don't think necessarily falls into what you're doing, but I'm thinking of Andrew Gerland or Huck Bakko. And I know those two have worked together in the past, especially Huck Bakko. I, Used to see a lot of his shorts when I would go to Microcinefest in Baltimore. And he did one, gosh, he did a whole series of food movies. And they were all basically sabotaging food and getting revenge on people. And it took me a long time to be like, is he really doing this or is this all fake? And there was one where Gerland wasn't it, but I know Gerland and Gerland is a piece of 
Gurlin's not the nicest person in the world. So I was like, he could be doing this. He could be participating in this revenge plot. So yeah, really messes with your brain. God, I have no idea what you're talking about. It sounds fascinating. I'm trying to remember because Gurland had one more mainstream type film, and I'm pretty sure Botko worked on it with him. There was one Botko film that I loved a lot called Until There Are None, where it's he tells this story about how, oh God, it's been a while since I've seen it. Somebody that he knew got killed by a bald eagle, so he decided he would hunt and kill every bald eagle until there are none. The Last Exorcism was their mainstream entry. If you've ever heard of that from 2010. Okay. How do you want to unpack this film? Like the most compelling character for me, it might be Duggo. It might just be because he is, he's the loose cannon in this. And there's a lot more Duggo as the movie goes on than I thought there ever would be. I really thought this was going to focus on Arthur and especially that they start off with Tom Hayden on TV I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. This is really going to talk about 60s politics and where we are now in 92 when this was made. And just maybe they would talk a little bit more about what George H.W. Bush was up to at the time. But really, as we go along, this becomes Duggo's movie for me so much. And there's another interesting piece of the story is so it was a very, very small crew. And James Andronica's brother in law, is a guy named William Grillo. And he's the guy at the end who is playing the Duggo character in the fake movie. He's the one at the end and where James Andronica comes up to him and says, hey, that was, you gave me a lot to work with as the technical advisor. You did, you, that was really great. And then he walks away from me and says, but it was just a movie. And according to James, that line was improvised. And again, according to James, William Grillo was, Paul doesn't 100% corroborate this, so take it as you will. But according to James, William Grillo was the most valuable player of the shoot. He was just a production assistant who helped in all these different ways, including creating the exploding head effect in the in that scene. So he's, which I think is one of the most, like, that's a very impressive big money effect for such a small movie. They're really well done. And yeah, and he just, he was talking about how William Grillo in a lot of ways was Duggo. He was a special ops guy and that informed his writing of the character, but also informed the whole film because according to Paul, their crew is like a seven or eight person crew to make the movie. William Grillo was, yeah, he was a a big part of the production. He, and he passed away, uh, few years after the film but uh, he's an unheralded and important part of it and but in terms of the film he actually ends up playing a very important role for the last wrong foot oh and there's another piece of this that paul maybe when we get to the end we'll talk about the alternate endings so just a few weeks ago we covered a movie called the last supper which was all about these bleeding heart liberals that eventually start inviting more right-wing type folks to dinner and then every dinner would end with them being poisoned and dying and the liberals like thinning the herd of the conservatives and there's this whole thing of the left never does anything the left is completely ineffectual 
we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas type of people. And then this movie is saying almost the exact same thing. There is no left left. The left will never pick up a gun. The right will always have the guns and be able to take out the left. And you read that kind of garbage on Reddit too. If you look in the wrong places, I really like this whole idea of, oh yeah, we actually are mad. We are pissed and we will take out this guy though. I really wish they had spent a little bit more time. Like I said, talking about why Bush, why take him out? I think his son was a lot worse though. Papa definitely spent a lot more time in the CIA and probably had his fingers in a lot of really dirty pies, but sitting here from 2023. So 2030 years after the fact, Jesus, 30 years later, I'm like, God, I I barely remember George H.W. Bush other than when he moved across from the Simpsons and Homer was just torturing him. It feels like a very benign era from where we're sitting. But as you say, it wasn't quite so benign. There are two sequences, as I recall, where Paul essentially does a kind of medium cool. He does a Haskell Wexler riff where he builds himself into a real-life event, which is the opening, more or less the sequence at the beginning where Bush comes out of the plane. And this is quite an extraordinary image, actually, when you think about it. So Paul was basically speaking the lines, but no, as I recall, Andres, if I have this right, he wasn't, he he post-dubbed the lines. He memorized that and he does it extraordinarily well. You imagine the pressure he's under, because if you lose that shot, then you don't have a shot. That's it. You have have one take at this thing. And then, I'm sorry, there's another sequence where Paul is very clearly, oh, it's during the convention. It's at the convention where, now, where was that? Where was the Republican convention in in, in 92, 92? It must have been. I can't remember. But anyway, so Paul gets on the convention floor. And in the book I'm working on, so Paul's memoir was out earlier this year, but well, I got to working with him, he sent me the key to a storage unit in Los Angeles. And next time I was over in Los Angeles, I went to this storage unit. It's just remarkable. Pulling out boxes of material, photographs, negatives, reels of film, paraphernalia, photographs, slides. So Paul and I put this book together and it includes many interesting documents, including some pages from his FBI file. And he also had a CIA file, which I think is quite impressive in a sense, in one way. I don't I've done a lot of work in that era, and I've not come across anyone having a CIA file. They're certainly not that extensively. But also, so the reason I mention this is in this book, we print the letter that he wrote to the White House, basically saying we're an independent. You know, he made up a news company. I can't remember now. It made up a fake news company and asked for press credentials, and they said no. They said no. But he used the letter the letter had to come in. That's right. In fact, he just, I think he brought the letter, the rejection letter, knowing that in the heat of the moment, he could just flash it and they would see White House at the top of it. And that's apparently what he did. And he got in and they set up and they got that extraordinary shot of the president getting off. And but given the fact that the film is somehow about assassination, political assassination, you do wonder how easy it was to get that close to the president 30 years ago. One wonders if, for example, Paul and his crew were sh- searched in some way. Or, but if there's this interesting 
it's another layer to the film in a sense. The fact that's how he got that shot by basically lying. Probably he broke any number of federal laws to to get that shot. Actually, <laughs> so I shouldn't have said that. I can tell you that when I was in college, it was right around this time. It was the time when Clinton was com- campaigning. And he came to the University of Michigan campus and one of my best friends, who's still one of my best friends today, he just staked out the place and somehow ended up talking with the right person because he can talk to anybody. He's one of these like very genial, just always is listening, paying attention, really does a great job when it comes to that. And he ended up talking with somebody and got us press credentials to shoot the Clinton speech. So we were literally up on these rafters where it was like CBS, CNN, us, NBC. And it was like, what are we doing here? And I have this like little camcorder. They all have their big machines. I've got this little high eight recorder. I'm like, this is freaking nuts that we were able to do this. And not only that, but then when the rally gets over, we go and we, track down Clinton and shake his hand. And then he's going to go through like Rackham auditorium and come out the other side. So we said, you know what, let's go shake his hand again. So we ran around the building, got to the other side. And when he came out, we shook his hand again. I was just like, how did we do this? How do we, yeah, of course he was a candidate, but they give candidates a lot of security as well. But it seems like impossible that we managed to get that close with him. And also shoot all this stuff with the my little consumer grade camcorder i think it might be relevant somehow that paul plays arthur gwendolyn clearly it's relevant somehow he purports to be this kind of assassin of the left and the implication is why would there be an assassin of the left to kickstart a revolution basically at a certain point in his life paul would have signed up for that kind of thing there's, he tells very interesting stories in his book about the moment where he basically stepped back from that world of politics, of the potential kind of catastrophe that those kinds of politics could render when he's working with the Black Panthers. And they, he's in Algeria with them, and they essentially ask him, will you go back to New York and be our, be our point man and determine where we can build field hospitals and this kind of thing? And at that point, Paul says, yeah, okay, I think I'm a little bit, a little over my head here. But one, one gets the sense that Arthur Gwendolyn in this film is never over his head. You get the sense that if somehow his film could somehow be used to start a revolution, whatever it may be, or his actions, then he would run with it. It's a, Paul, by the way, he gives a really good performance in this film. Yeah, he does. The guy's not just a film director. And actually, Andres and I were talking earlier, completely coincidentally, Last week, Paul got, I got an email from an archivist at Yale, you know, at the Yale Film Archive. Long story short, they found some reels in a New York movie, a New York laboratory with Paul's name on it, and they got it transferred. And it's pristine, beautiful footage, four reels, half an hour each, no sound, black and white, of Black Panther rallies in New Haven in 1970. Abby Hoffman is there. Jerry Rubin, Bill Kunstler, not Bill Kunstler, Dave Dellinger, who I interviewed one time, is there along with Tom Hayden's there. So there's a direct connection between 
November Men in this footage. There we go, because this November Men opens with this very painful bit from Tom Hayden talking about the death, the deaths of Martin Luther King, of in the JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King. It's the other way around, Martin Luther King, RFK. And the pain, the line I spoke at the beginning, our generation became might have beens. That's a terrible kind of existential indictment of yourself, really. It's just the sense of the, we have no power over ourselves just because three, three bullets has wiped out an entire generation. It's so bleak. The fact that Paul would open with that, he's a very dark and cynical kind of streak to him. Even though this film, I find it genuinely funny. I find it really quite amusing the way that he plays with, as I say, these levels of reality. And there's the dream where, where the FBI agent's having the dream. That's one version of it. But then completely transparently, the scene where the guy goes and buys the lens and gets into a fight. And just as when he's about to kill this guy, we hear cut and it turns out we're making, it's a scene from a film. And as he just keeps, keeps on doing it again and again. Yeah. That he's able to do that to us. We should have known that it was a dream. We should have known that was an action sequence. Like, but yeah, he just keeps doing it. When he yells cut the second time, I'm just like, really? I fell for it again? But luckily I don't get mad at this. And I, I should say, according to Paul, when he started this, he really did want to shoot. He did really did want to assassinate George Bush. And he did like, ha- as he got further into the film, he his path was the was like the path of the film. At the beginning, the director really wants to kill George Bush and use his movie to do it. By the end, the director is just making a movie about someone who wants to do this. And it sounds like that was Paul's process. When he filmed Tom Hayden, when he filmed George Bush, he really thought on some level, again, I don't know if it was like, I'm going, like, I want to kill George Bush, or I am going to kill George Bush. But it was definitely, I want to, and I want, so almost like an acting exercise, like a, a method actor. I'm going to live as if I am this director trying to carry out this thing. And then at a certain point, as he tells the story, about a month into it, he got more into the machinery of making the moon movie and realized that was just a mind game that he was playing with himself. But there was a point in the making of this where he was on the same level that our Arthur Gwendolyn is. I love the whole thing too, how they're talking about, I mentioned there is no political left left in the country. Left will never pick up a gun. And then there's a line in there about only millionaires are listened to in this country. And I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake, it's only gotten worse over the years. You know what? Why don't we put a businessman in charge of the country? That sounds like a great idea. Now only billionaires are listened to. <laughs> billionaires can't get a it get the time of day. I see a, a news headline today about Jeff Bezos marrying his longtime girlfriend or whatever. I'm like, who gives a fuck? This is not American royalty. These are American oligarchs, guys. I don't need to care about who's dating who in the world of billionaires. Thank you. Paul's background is his. He was an economist. He, he studied to be an economist. If you understand money, it will make you very cynical about America very quick. He was around a lot of money. And Andres is referring to something, the elephant in the room, which is that for a time, 
Paul was married to, I'm not sure if she could be described as one of the richest women in America, but she had a few bucks to her name. It was family money, the Sears Roebuck fortune, a very interesting family that she was a part of. And Paul got to know them. He married her. I think they married in 67 and he walked, they divorced in 71 and he walked away without taking a penny, which I think says an awful lot about the guy. I find it very funny that Robert Davi is in this movie, just because I don't think the Robert Davi of 2023 would be in a movie, anything like this. He's definitely crossed over and he's making movies for the other side kind of thing. He revels in those James Woods, Kevin Sorbo, Dean Kane type politics. And I'm just like, what is he doing in this movie? This movie isn't really super leftist to me because of the whole like non-vilification of George H.W. Bush. But like I said, I can't see Davi being like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll be in your movie about how you want to kill George Bush. The story about that is that they made the movie without Davi. Then they took it to Cannes. And got a bunch of excitement about it, but everyone was like, you got to have a star. So Davi was friends with and with James Andronica. So Paul calls back and is like, Hey, Robert Davi, will you be, will you do a scene in our movie? Davi was like, yeah, I'll be in the movie. As long as in one scene, I'm on a horse in one scene, I'm shooting ski. There was something else. Yeah. Then he did all three of them. It was such a weird thing for him to ask for. Davi comes in at the last minute to help out his friend James. And James was definitely more. It, James is a really interesting guy. He had a whole screenplay that he had been working on for a long time about the day of the Kennedy assassination. So he and yeah, he's one of those guys who left and right is a rib. It's very hard to pin down. Like you talk to him, he sounds like a leftist. But according to Paul, he was always the pushback against Paul's more left-wing politics. Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably because Paul is an Ivy League guy who grew up in an academic family, and James is a guy from the streets in Brooklyn, a real like an almost made man kind of guy. So they wanted a star, but wasn't Bo star enough? The guy beat the living hell out of young Henry Hill. As soon as he showed up on screen, I was just like, oh, Mr. Hill. I'm sure I've seen him in other things, but I sure do recognize him from Goodfellas. You think Bo Starr is a bigger star than Robert Davi? No, I don't. I was just joking around. Who was in Fletch? Come on. I do have to say I did recognize James Andronica as soon as he showed up on screen because he has been in a lot of stuff. and. I definitely was like, oh, yeah, I know this guy's face very easily, probably because he was doing a lot of acting in the 70s and 80s. And that's my wheelhouse. The story on him is that he was amongst among the Italian-American actors that were that came out to Hollywood. He was the one who was regard like Robert De Niro was the actor. James Andronica was the real thing kind of thing. And supposedly Tarantino asked him to be in Reservoir Dogs and Andronica told him to go take a leap that he was a Hollywood phony. So that's Andronica's. That was his thing. He was, he took a great deal of pride in being the legit version of the thing that 
the guys like Pacino and De Niro were pretending to be. I found a piece of paper in Paul's storage unit relating to Nunzio, and it essentially was a, a one-page statement, unsigned, noted. It was unsigned, but it basically said, I hereby give four days of my time to the Nunzio production, Robert De Niro. It was not signed. I'm not sure if it was wishful thinking on someone's part or if it had been somehow arranged. They just never got it to him because they realized trying to shoehorn Robert De Niro into Nunzio doesn't sound like a great idea. But anyway, there was clearly some connection, I sense, between Andronica. Did Andronica know De Niro? When he talked about De Niro, he was always like, his mom was like, he was like, he got him in all these great acting classes. Of course he's going to go on. He's one of, he was a, a privileged little snot-nosed kid. He got to be do all this stuff. Now, he wasn't actually in the streets fighting like I was. Thing That's that James Andronica thing. But I think that it is. De Niro, even though he plays tough guys, is an artist. He's, he was given opportunities to develop himself as an artist when he was a young teen and a teenager. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he wasn't just playing what he was. He had learned, he, had, he could, he knew that place, but he had the skills to develop. He developed his skills in a way that James, who came from a rougher background, was not able. Yes, but yeah, it's all true. At the same time, Andronica's scripts and performances in Nunzio November Men are impressive. He's a very good, very compelling performer. And this is why I asked you about the scripts. The script of November Men, or at least as it came out in the film, I know I've got a draft of the script. It was in Paul's boxes. It's different. Tom Hayden isn't there, for example, as I recall. I have to check that, at least in one draft. But anyway, he does great work as a writer and performer in both these films. And as you say, he, with Duggar, he plays Duggar. He placed himself at the center of this film. You, don't, you think Arthur's the center of the film, but maybe it's Duggar, actually. We haven't talked about it, but one of my favorite things, and I think it's a, a bit that like actually transcends the cheapness of the film, that whole bit about the wolf, the lone wolf, and the the shot, the way that is shot, it is it's a heartbreaking, a genuinely heartbreaking scene. I feel like yeah, it does feel like it's in a it, that little bit could be in a bigger budget movie than what it is. He was a genuinely tortured person. And a, a very soulful person who had a lot of demons. And according to Paul, they, there was a lot of darkness in the time that they spent together. But they were very close. Yeah, some of those scenes like him fighting with his wife, Marina, the scene with him and his baby, the fight that they have where he takes the fork and bends it. It's such a simple thing, but it really works very well. And yeah, you never know what's going to happen with this guy. And the whole thing of... Him and his neighbors down the hall, they moved to this real shitty apartment, and he's got these loud neighbors down the hall. Yes. As soon as they come to the apartment building, there's all these cops outside. I was just like, oh, he finally took care of business with these loud neighbors. And when they do that flashback, you mentioned the head blowing up scene. Holy cow, was that amazing. This film has way more amazing things in it than it really should, considering how low budget it really seems. It makes a lot of sense too, the way that they set up the crew. You've got like, who, who's going to be the Patsy? You know that they are planning on pinning this on somebody and you've got 
the lady who's just out of prison. You've got the African-American gentleman, but really you've got these two Iraqi American gentlemen and you're just like, oh, for sure they're going to pin this on these two guys. And I also like the whole idea of Duggo is so smart right off the bat. He's just, oh, your whole plan of using a remote control helicopter to crash into his limo with all the C4 on it isn't going to work at all because all the radio waves are going to get blocked because there's a Black Hawk helicopter that's going to be flying overhead, blocking all of these radio signals. I'm like, okay, that's really super smart. But then they still seem to be stuck on that idea. And yes, there's a twist on that towards the end. But again, it's we're being wrong-footed. We're like, why are they still sticking with this? What's going on? Maybe there is a tie into this earlier scene where he's looking at these wires. And again, very clever stuff. But do you think that Arthur Gwendolyn wants to kill the president? For real? That's tough. I think he starts out wanting to. Like, clearly he doesn't because he goes and tries and stops it. Tries to stop it. But I think this film is slippery enough that it gets to have it both ways. I would argue it might be to its credit, I think. Maybe. I'm not sure. I find the film to be really refreshing and fun to look at and interesting and thought-provoking for me for any number of reasons. So I think to its credit, it's very gloriously ambiguous and makes no bones about it. And Paul, at the center of it, is just winking to us throughout this film in a way. So I enjoy the spirit of this film. I think it's good. I think it's good. When he's talking with Eric Clancy, the guy who came in and said, oh, I've got AIDS, and now he's coming back, and oh, I'm, I need SAG insurance for my baby and all this. Paul looks down, Arthur looks down, and there's the famous life cover with, with Oswald on there. I just laughed out loud. I like, wrote in my notes, ladies and gentlemen, we have our Patsy. Then he has that scene in the car with Bo Starr. He's like, I can't believe he's eating a hot I love people doing eating scenes. He's eating the hot dog. He's like, oh, I can't believe he thinks I'm gonna, he's going to totally uh, Oswald me. He thinks I'm going to be Patsy. Pure Oswaldism. He calls it Oswaldism. It's like, pure Oswaldism. He thinks he's going to be the Patsy. It's a good moment. It's a very funny, in Paul's book. He speaks quite movingly, and I've seen the photographs that he subsequently took in D.C., but he talks about discovering about the death of John Kennedy for the first time. I forget now. I think he's walking on campus, walking on the Harvard campus. And then they go down, he and some friends go down to D.C., and uh, he takes photos at the funeral. And I'm working on a Brian De Palma project at the moment, and De Palma, who is three years older than Paul, was is it doesn't take a genius to look at his films and know that he was utterly obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. And to a certain extent, one can't say an entire generation was, but it certainly impacted Paul and it impacted Brian in very big ways. And you see it seeping through several of their films, all the way through really just, as I say, gloriously to November Men. Just at the most basic level, the whole the idea of shooting versus shooting the idea of we're framing up these shots, but we've got a crosshairs in the middle of the frame. Is this being shot through a scope or is this being shot through a lens? It's very smart to have that 
basic confusion at the heart of this movie and to be able to use those words interchangeably and mean something so different, but you never know. Is he talking about shooting the president or is he talking about shooting the president? And it's a great, simple, eloquent thing. Also, the way the film is edited, there's some pretty interesting things. For example, as I recall, we hear her voiceover and we wonder what her voiceover is. And it turns out she's spilling all to the FBI. And the way Paul cuts these sequences together, he's a good filmmaker. I enjoy his films. They're unpretentious. They're entertaining. They're thought-provoking. I think he's something. And I was going to get to this footage, the Bobby Seale, Black Panther, New Haven footage from 1970, which he writes about in his memoir. It's really well filmed. It, he's got a big, heavy 60-millimeter camera on his shoulder, and he's getting really good images out of it. Yeah, there's one scene where they're in the car, and he's driving with... Is Warren Beatty driving the car? Warren probably is driving. Paul says that he probably gave you, told you where in the film to look, but you can see the back of Warren's head. And then you can see... John Avelson get up. John Avelson too, right. And then, but they're driving by and the people are running after the car and saying, fuck. It is pretty wild that this film showed up, this footage showed up over 50 years later. In the Paul Williams world, we're very, for Paul Cronin and I who have been reading this book and working with Paul for the last year and a half and more. I think we both have, like anyone who's working with him, when he talks about this footage, you're like, oh my God, where is it? Where is this Black Panther footage with you and Warren Beatty? And like, uh, where is this? And of course you figure it's, of course it's lost forever. And literally this week, like two days ago, it became available, which just makes you think that anything like Magnificent Ambersons is possible. There's going to be, there's a lot of stuff showing up. Archives. We're moving from a, this moment where a generation that was steeped in that kind of analog technology is clearing out their cupboards. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going to come to light, I think. I've been doing it for 20 years myself, going into storage units. The greatest place on earth, storage units. You never know what you're going to find. You're talking about how competent he is as a filmmaker, and I will say the whole end sequence before we get to the rug being pulled out yet again, if not multiple times, but that whole end sequence... I was on the edge of my chair. I really didn't know what he was going to do when Paul and Elizabeth or Arthur and Elizabeth end up getting shot. I was genuinely, I think I gasped. I did not see that coming. And just him crawling across that parking lot roof, trying to get to the car to hit it and set off the car alarm. It's really tense. Paul knows how to make films. The guy knows how to make films. And all of that, so much of that is just stolen. It's pure guerrilla filmmaking. He's running across the street. That street is not locked off. That's stealing shots right and left. I love it. Wonder where they filmed the scene in the military base where Dago goes back and asks for his job back. My, when I see a film like that in a film like this, I think to myself, how do they get that shot? <laughs> Don't worry too much about the drama of it. It's a well done scene. It's actually a very well done scene. When he go, Dago goes back and essentially goes to his former commanding officer and just says, you've got to take me back. It's a really, again, a really bleak moment in this guy's life. The guy that's, you're a pussy. Get deal with it. Yeah, right. The guy says, if you were a real Marine, you wouldn't have come back here, motherfucker. It's a really it's a harsh thing to say. Do you remember what Dago does? He just stands there 
and just in complete silence processes what this guy said to him and just turns to him and says, Semperfy, and walks out. And the guy just says, Semperfy, Marine. And as he walks out, it's a, it's really brutal stuff. Andronica does it well. I like this guy. I encourage, this is not just pure self-promotion, but the episode of the World is Wrong podcast that we did about the November men, I encourage people to, it's, James actually died earlier this year. So we don't, there's, there isn't much documentation of him. And from talking with him, I get the sense that not many people have sought him out to talk with him. It's one of the, the things I'm most proud to have documented on the show. He has a lot of stories to tell and he's a very interesting guy. And I, I hope people will check that out. I wonder if Pitbull did try to check because he does look like the kind of guy who would chase you off his porch with a shotgun. You know what I'm saying? You stay, I wonder I if it would be a did. handgun. I think for him it would be a handgun. There are so many times where I'll be watching a movie or a TV show and things are going really wrong. And I will literally sit on my couch and I'll say, and cut it because I know that we are in a dream sequence or something is being filmed. And when that final and cut happens in this movie, I didn't see it coming. Did not see it coming. And then we like cut to the big rap party and find out that everybody's really okay. Or are they? Or and are they? Because it, it's still, and they, it, it, he does one last turn, which I'm so glad that he gave it, that he gave it that last turn. I want, it needs to end on an ominous note. Let mu- I see. I love that music, that little car, that carnival. It's so creepy and so funny. It's the perfect tone for it. When you get to that and he's there, the William Grillo, the real Duggo in the movie is about to take a shot at the next president. I'm a connoisseur of assassination films. And I think like this stands right there with the best of them. Absolutely. What are the other ones? Well, parallax, oh, like parallax view. view. I'm a big fan of Suddenly, the Frank Sinatra, Sterling Hayden film. I got to tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest something to you that Jonathan Demme's remake of Manchurian Candidate is as good, if not better, than the original. Discuss. I, have to, I do really like. It's hard to say better because I love the original so much, but it certainly isn't a waste of. It's a reasonable redo and i while i'm watching it i'm not missing the other one i remember thinking it's been a while since i saw it but i was quite terrified by it i thought it was really well done i've never actually sat down and watched it because i can take denzel in small doses i love liev shriver i don't know and then i really appreciated all of the asian actors that they had in the original so much that i was like i don't know and I will also say that after Philadelphia, I was just like, yeah, I'm done with Demi for a while. Unfortunately, he was done with me as well and the rest of the world at a point. But later, Demi, I haven't checked any of it out. Check that one out. I can't speak to gracious. Beloved, Rachel getting married, any of those. I, I, I dug it. I did dig the remake. I did, but it's one of those things where no matter how much I dig the remake, you're not going to beat the sort of zeitgeisty synchronicity of the Manchurian candidate. That's it does. The Manchurian candidate does the thing that I love most in films where the film is great on its own merits, but 
there are things happening in the culture around the film that are informing the film and making the film a vehicle of destiny in a way that the filmmakers could never be aware of. And that's my favorite magic trick that film plays. So there's no way that any, that you could afterwards redo that. But I have to agree, as Paul say, when I think about it, like, there are things that it can do and say that the original film couldn't. And that's part of the strength of the original film, but still like the, I, one of the things that's really chilling is the, uh, the scene where the lead Schreiber, lead Schreiber character kills his love. We won't, I don't want to go into, I don't want, we said we'll do spoilers about this. We want, we don't want to do spoilers about the Manchurian candidate, but there's a way that again, just like a modern film, it can do the violence in a more graphic way than they could in the original. And in that case, it actually makes it more heartbreaking to see him commit these acts of violence. So I watched the trailer, which was tough to find. It was very tough to find a trailer for the November men. Oh, really? And the last shot of this trailer is a scope shot of Bill Clinton. And so Paul, you made mention of killing the other guy. And I was just like, Okay, it, so you, Andres, I think you alluded to earlier the alternate endings of this. So what is happening here? The original ending of the movie had him shooting Bill Clinton, had the William Grillo original Duggo killing, like the last shot is him aiming at Bill Clinton. But I... Do you remember why, Paul, Paul, do you remember why they took it out? Maybe they just found that. Uh... I think that there was a distributor who was troubled by it and insisted on some cuts. I Forgive me, I, I'd have to check the because book. By then, yeah, by then, Clinton was already president. And I, it's, a, it's a weird place to draw the line at, on this movie. I don't know. It's like we've had all this nudity, but then one particular person's nudity we can't have. You've had this whole movie about a lot of killing and a lot of assassinating. That was the original ending, and it does not make it in the film, but I find it wonderful that it made it into the trailer. Yeah, and I'm going to have to see, because I saw the trailer through Plex, because I have a Plex server, and it goes out and it finds trailers and pulls them in. I'm going to have to see if I can somehow download that trailer or something so I can put it onto YouTube, because... There's no trailer for this on YouTube as far as what I could find. I'm all for pirating everything about this movie and getting it out there. Let's beat the conspiracy. So guys, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play an interview with the director and star Paul Williams, the author of Harvard, Hollywood, Hitman, and Holy Men, a memoir right after these brief messages. Heading to the movies. Reserve your seat before the show on Fandango. Find times, read reviews, and buy tickets to your favorite theater. Fast and easy on the Fandango app or Fandango.com. See what's playing near you. Watch the trailers, grab your seat. All that's left is choosing butter or no butter. As if that's a tough decision. Every movie, every feeling, every time. That's Fandango. Your one stop before showtime. Buy your movie ticket now on the Fandango app or Fandango.com. Classicy is a film journey to the east. A curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code MIKE50, you can get Classicy membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies, and more. 
You can also get access to the Classic Key Journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays and watch lists. Sign up now to start your adventure in film. The classic drama East of Eden, starring James Dean and classic Western Rio Bravo, starring John Wayne, are now available for the first time in crystal clear 4K Ultra HD. Look for them on 4K Ultra HD and digital. Visit WB100.com for more information. Why the book when you wrote it? It sounds like you had tried to write your memoirs before. List off a few other titles throughout there. Why this time and why that particular title? I had always planned to do a memoir at the end of my life because I really dedicated myself from early on, probably because I was trying to hide who I was, that I would simply have a series of experiences. I'd read Hemingway and Fitzgerald and when I was quite young, and I always had a sense of mortality from very early on, very bizarre that way. And so I knew I wanted to find out what life was and that the only way you can do that is to really go through a lot of experiences. That wasn't by plan. When I go to see my friends and it turns out the Dalai Lama's teacher is there to give me the teachings from the highest man on the planet. Or I go to see my friend, Bert's friend, Huey P. Newton, and with all the far left lawyers and Huey asked me to stay because I was one who could figure out why the chairman of the jury would vote to have him convicted of second-degree murder. And none of the other lawyers there had an answer for him. I said, look, that black chairman of the jury thinks he's saving your life. If you get a hung jury, the next chairman of the jury will vote for first-degree murder. And that's when he said, hey, you stay behind. But anyway, I go, I think I'm finished with my political stuff. And then Bert Schneider invites me to go to Cuba. And uh, I say, yeah, I want to meet Fidel. And I'm the only guy who knows Francis Coppola, the Candy Bergen, Terry Malick, Bert Schneider, other people. Nobody knows Francis Coppola. So I'm delegated to bring him into the group. And so when I go to his hotel room in Mexico City, I say, hold on, Francis, just imagine you, Fidel Castro, what you would you like most to have from us. And Francis puts it out his bottom lip as you can read it. And I said, I'll tell you what, a Spanish subtitled print of Godfather 2. He's a goddamn hero of the movie. I guarantee you, if we bring him a print, a Spanish print, we'll get to meet him. So Francis got on the phone, called Madrid and arranged to have a print sent. And we waited two extra days in Mexico City before we went to Havana so we could bring it with us. Since I'm telling the story now, in the process of answering why I wrote the memoir now, but this is another sort of the kind of experience that happened that when I'm in, in Havana, after about 10 days of traveling around, we finally meet Fidel after he gives a speech to a half million people and uh, who were there for the celebration. He tells them, believe in yourselves, believe in the revolution. And they keep going, Fidel. No, you're brilliant. Fidel. Anyway, so we meet him down behind the stadium. He comes and he says, comes to the group. And we ask him a series of questions. Why you kill the people in the stadium and stuff like that. And he says, revolution is serious business. We gave him a chance to get out. They didn't get out. They wanted to kill us. Well, we supposed to. Anyway, 
So anyway, he says hello to each person. When he gets to me, he whispers in my ear. He's, he says, do you play basketball? So I'm like six foot three. And I said, yes, I do. I do play basketball. I said, okay, I'll meet you tomorrow at the school. You bring your guys, I'll bring mine. I said, okay, you got a game. My two guys were overweight Francis and overweight Terry Malik. I figured I'd, I'd be able to handle it. Then he goes to Francis, who's standing next to me on my left, and he says, I hope you don't mind, but we've stolen Godfather 2 out of your rooms, and we're now reproducing it for our people. And uh, Francis says, hey, it's not mine. It's Paramount's. Anyway, so things like this, they're great stories. I go into what happened with the Dalai Lama's teacher. Who The Dalai Lama says, I'm very privileged to have met this man. He taught me so much. I met this guy. I spent three hours with him, and he sent me on extraordinary trips. I didn't even know who he was. I called him Dingo, like the Australian apex predator dog. His name was actually Dilgo Tensei Rinpoche. I found that out 20 years later. I was in a Denver airport waiting for a plane, and suddenly an apparition like 12 feet by 12 feet of this guy came in front of me. I couldn't believe it. And I was trained in psychology of perception at Harvard. And wrote some books about stuff. I'm feeling I know how the brain and the eye operate. So I checked it out. I looked up. The image didn't look up, didn't move up. I looked to the left and the right. No, the image stayed there. So I knew it wasn't a hallucination for my brain. And after about a half a minute, disappeared. You know, and about 10 years after that, I found out that Dilgo, the guy who appeared there, died on that day. Anyway, there are things like this that happened throughout my life. It's from reading the book. And I realized that when I got older, because I did have the advantage of studying with some very high llamas, in addition to Dilgo Kensi, and yeah. it came clear to me that I would have to empty myself of these memories if I were going to be more serene in the present time, less interested in the past. I feel like Kung Fu Panda. The past is history. The future is a mystery. That's why they call the present a gift. Anyway, but it's basically Kung Fu Panda got it. Kung Fu Panda and Buddha, they're both on on the same page, right? So anyway, I knew that I would have to go through this process of writing all this stuff down. I also knew it was pretty extraordinary stuff. And in 1980, what was it, 1990 or so, I hired the top oral historian of the United Nations, woman named Nira Atiyah, who had written a wonderful book on women's liberation in Egypt, a small subject, but she was quite brilliant. And I paid her to interview me for two hours a day for 10 days because I knew I had all these, the story when I took my first psychedelic trip was peyote with David Carradine and Barbara Hershey. And I met Mescalito. Who knew I was even taking peyote? They just gave me this stuff to take. And it was an extraordinary trip. So anyway, I knew I'd probably forget the details of these various events. So I had her interview me and I, it was transcribed. And so I had that. So that's why so much of the stuff is so fresh. I couldn't have remembered that much detail. I'm almost 80 years old then. Anyway, I knew I would be writing the story. I knew that I had created this life of searching, seeking, trying to learn. Knows most people, <laughs> if they were married to the richest woman in the world, would have lived that out. Or if they were in Hollywood and became directing Bobby Duvall and John Voight, would have lived that out. Or 
or with Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, and they would have lived that out. Or, or if they met the high llamas, they would have been trying to get higher. And I just kept moving and trying to understand what my life was about and what life is about. And so I was a real seeker. But I also had this tremendous feeling of the fact that it's, oh, it ends. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as you get near the end, there's a certain pattern to the life cycle. A little plant grows, it blooms, it dies. Or I had it as a tutor. This goes on and on. Eric H. Erickson, probably the most famous psychoanalyst of the second half of the 20th century, who was my tutor. And he wrote a book, which Gail Sheehy ripped off for a book called Passages, which was a big bestseller. But she took his basic ideas about the stages of life, whether it's basic trust versus mistrust when you're a kid or identity versus identity diffusion when you're a teenager or intimacy versus that when you get your first love or generativity versus stagnation when you're older. And the last stage is integrity versus despair. And to the extent that you keep identifying with your ego and your personality is this wonderful thing, that will lead to despair because that's going to end. So it's very important to understand, to let go of your ego. So this memoir, in a way, is an anti-memoir. Most memoirs, people write them to tell them how great you were, what a splendid fellow you were. I wrote this to say this is a history of mistakes. This is a history of failures, but the failures of a seeker. In other words, I never lost sight of the fact that I was really trying to find out something important. And so as when I got to this stage, when the integrity versus despair stage applied, I figured, okay, time to write the book. I studied with a, a Sufi master for a year back in 1973. And I still remember one of the exercises he gave us was to write on a piece of paper, the name of every person you ever met. He said, you just, they're all inside your head. You got to get them onto the piece of paper and get them out of you. You got to get clear. You got to empty your head. I spent three days and it's amazing. If you sit down and try to remember everybody and just don't be in a rush. Anyway, that was the first stage in the series of exercises where you learn to still your mind and eliminate thought unless you want to think. I still remember that we had a there's a very complicated meditation where you have seven points of concentration plus your breathing. And it's almost impossible to think while you're doing that. So the thoughts that come do come. You can hear the voices of the thoughts. Most of the thoughts you have are somebody talking. And my next to last voice I heard was John Voigt saying in the editing room, look at every take. Because I, I got the good take. I was young. I'd say, oh, let's use that one. He says, oh, look at every take. Look at every take. So that. He drilled that into me. And then the last voice I heard was my father, who was a school principal, who said, I just heard him say, get an A. I later did the, what the Sufis call the alchemical transformation. It's the highest Buddhist uh, meditations that you can't even do unless you can enter void at will. It's not like afternoon yoga. And... uh, in that meditation, I did meet my father, and he did put his foot on my neck. He said, I did cry and say, I'll be whoever you want me to be. Just get your foot off my neck. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that it was time to write the book and get all this stuff out. Because frankly, 
I'm a good storyteller. I'm, I could tell stories till I die and, and never actually see the sunset. So it's time to stop telling stories. And uh, so I figured, put them all in the book. And by the way, I only put in maybe half the stories, the ones that were important for understanding the shedding of the ego and coming to realize the importance of the essential nature of being. So there are a lot of wonderful Hollywood stories I left out because they were just ego aggrandizement. And that's what I didn't want to be in the book. In any event, then the pandemic came along very when, and I'm in Brazil with people who speak Portuguese, which is Carioca Portuguese, which I studied very seriously Portuguese, but it was Sao Paulo where they speak Portuguese with clear pronunciation and articulation. But in, in Rio de Janeiro, they all say everything they say sounds like Gloucesters, give me some Gloucesters, Gloucester, Gloucester. It's like some kind of Spanish and Russian put together. I never could learn, understand a word of that, what anybody was saying around here. And yet I'm here in a 3,000 year old fishing village on the side of a jungle mountain and the pandemic comes. So you don't want to go out and it's a very isolated place. So it's very safe. I had four years to really write it down and to sleep on it each night and wake up in the middle of the night and make your notes. And it was a perfect writing situation. And I got it done. Now it's a book. It's, it's, the fact is, I wrote it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't know what to do with it, but a guy named Paul Cronin was looking for Ed Pressman and called me. He's a film historian, Paul Cronin. He's written some books and a very bright fellow. Anyway, I was happy to help him find Ed. And I said, gee, you know a lot about movie. How would you like to read this manuscript? And he said, yeah, he's a real, he loves to read. So he's great. And so I sent him the manuscript and he calls me back two days later and says, this is great. You should publish it. I said, fine. You know how to get it published? He said, yeah. The University Press of Kentucky has the screen classics. They publish all these movie books. I'm sure they publish it. And I get a call from somebody, a guy named Pat McGilligan at University Press. And he has me talk to the head of the press, Ashley Runyon. And literally seven days after I asked them to read the script, they said they'd publish it. So everything in my life has been like that. I didn't go out looking to get this published. But now that it is, it's somewhat, I feel a little bit like a, a, a red dwarf star. It's dying, and just before it dies, it's a little explosion. Of... <laughs> so anyway, that's the long answer to your very brief question. <laughs> and I love how all of the things in the title are in the book. The Holy Men, the Hit Men, Harvard, all this. In that order that you listed on the title, it's just... It's well, I did go many titles with Extraordinary Life that made no difference. Harvard and all that. Blah, blah, blah. And I figured, what is it? Came to me fairly late. And then I had a wonderful friend for 40 years, a guy named Sylvain Dupre, who did the storyboards for Ridley Scott, for the Gladiator and Black Mark Down. He's really a gifted artist. And we've been friends a long time. And he said, he'll do the cover for the book. And he said, he said, you got any ideas what you want? So I sent him a picture of me naked with a book over my privates. 
And I said, how about this? When you project Harvard on my chest or something. So you've seen the cover of the book, which is a wolf in a Harvard shirt swallowing dynamite. He said, when you sent me that cover, it, it made me clear what you wanted to do with this book. <laughs> and so it was, his, and he did a great job. Harvard seemed so crucial and just so many connections that you made that way. Even to read that all of the people that just happened to be going to that school at that time, and then the impact they made on the world at large, as well as your world to see Michael Crichton and his brother there, and then you end up one of your first films <laughs> by Michael Crichton. Really? And that had no connect. It's not because I knew Michael at Harvard. John Talley at Warner Brothers gave me the Crichton book. He was friends with Crichton. I wasn't friendly with Crichton at that point when I was in Hollywood. I was out at the beach with Margot Kidder. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, on the Harvard Crimson, when I was there, you had Michael Crichton, Andy, Dr. Andrew T. Weil, Hendrik Kurtzberg, who he ended up writing for The New Yorker, Donnie Graham, who became publisher of the, the Washington Post. All kinds of people were there. And then the professors. John Galbraith was my tutored sophomore year. Erickson, junior year. I went to see Reinhold Niebuhr and Henry Kissinger, and it goes on and on. And it was quite a lot. Quite, that's why I, I, if I had to say there were two guiding principles, one, coming from the lower middle class, intense achievement, high level of neat achievement and, and academic autocracy in the family. Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to know how the smartest people spoke and talked about things. I had no idea what really smart people were like. I knew how the kids in Massapequa High School were like, and mm -hmm. half of them wanted to go to the Vietnam War. So I knew something was wrong with their brains. When I got to Harvard, I had no idea that there were people so smart. And that was okay with me. It's okay. I know I'm not the smartest guy in the world. My roommate was Howard Gardner, who has become you know, one of the most famous educationists in, in, in the world right now. Doing, He was the one who talked about multiple intelligences and teaching for understanding. But Howie said to me, he was my roommate, he said, well, you're not the smartest in any subject among the roommates, but you're the second smartest in more top, more areas than anybody. I have been in touch with all these people. I realize I'm pretty smart, but I ain't that smart. But I got to hear how they talk about things, how they approach subjects. And I really was interested in knowing that so I could go through life with some kind of self-confidence because I grew up in a principal family where if you didn't feel you were smart enough, you were haka. So it was important for me for neurotic reasons to know how to sound smart and understand the smartest people. And that led me to all these various people. It wasn't like I was, I knew any of them was important, was for my book. I just knew, oh, this Henry Kissinger guy, everybody says he's the smartest guy, young professor. I was a freshman and he was teaching a graduate course in international relations. And I went, I was, I must say, I was brazen. Nobody caused fear. This, I think because my father was a real, big guy and he didn't mind slapping you around on the behind. And I was enough frightened of him that nobody else could frighten me. You know what I mean? He's the most frightening guy you can imagine. 
And so Henry Kissinger, I went up to him and I said, look, I'd like audit your seminar on international relations. I remember he spoke in a thick German accent. But that's all. You want an undergraduate? Yeah, I'm an undergraduate, but I'd like to hear. So he allowed me to do his course. Now, I have to tell you that after four or five sessions of listening to him analyze international geopolitics, I never heard mention of compassion or love. It's all real politic power, and it gave me a headache, and I left. I didn't like him. And then I was looking, and I found a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. Who ever heard of Reinhold Niebuhr? He actually is probably the most important Protestant theologian of the last 200 years. And all I knew is that he said the opposite of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> and that was a delight to hear this very smart man talk about geopolitics from the point of view of compassion and, and care. And frankly, I thought economics was the holy grail. If you didn't understand economics, how can you possibly understand what's going on? Most people are unconscious economic pawns in the system, and they don't even realize it. So you're going to know all the different systems. And, I, and that's how I ended up enrolling in economics and getting John Galbraith as my tutor. And I'm sure I would have been an economist today, except for two things, which I report in a book, of course, is when we used to have lunch every Wednesday, Winthrop House, John Galbraith and a few other economics, two T's. And one Wednesday, he said, I hope next week I'm going to have a non-economist join me at lunch, and I want your permission to bring her to the round table. And of week, he was John Kennedy's advisor, ambassador to India, professor. Oh, good. Yes. We can object? Right. No. So the next Wednesday, we go in there, and I'm, I've read all his books on the sides. And I'm really looking forward to somebody telling us how corrupt American capitalism is and the idea that the people who produce products actually make the advertisements to create the artificial needs so people buy their crap and how immoral that is, you know, which was one of his tenets. And I thought maybe he's bringing some genius here to help us understand that. And when I walked into that next Wednesday's lunch and all the other economists were stunned too. I'm telling you, I saw the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life, in real life. I had never really seen an extraordinary beauty in real life. I'd seen pictures or in the movies, but I'd never been four feet, five feet away from them. And there was Angie Dickinson. Now, in fact, I learned later, John Galbraith was bringing Angie Dickinson to the White House with John Kennedy to have a little assignation. But all I knew is... Who is this person? She then he said she's Angie Dickinson. She was an actress, and I that was the moment I said I'm going into whatever field this woman is in. This is extraordinary, and so that was one reason I didn't become an economist. And the other one, of course, is when I got way up in the econometrics, I couldn't do the math. <laughs> and when you decided to become an actor, you threw yourself in full bore, yeah. and that's the thing with your whole life. It's I'm not going to be satisfied to just do this thing in passing. You just dive in feet first. Yeah. Yeah. I went into acting because it seemed to me actors were having more fun. I was working my ass off as a director. You got to think about this and that, but wow, this is way, this is no fun. Rehearsals were fun. I loved rehearsals. But when you got on the set, you had a lot of stuff to do, especially when you're big director they got so much help it's it is fun but if you're a middle level guy you got to do a lot of work yourself or low budget in the beginning a lot of work that person never got me an assistant director for the first two 
And I didn't know better to say, hey, you shouldn't save money on the assistant director. I also have to direct the actors. That's really why I studied acting because I saw from the teachings of the Dalai Lama's teacher, the Dilgo fellow, he actually, after he sent me out on these wild distance seeing trips, then did something with me called tantric theater, in which I tried to explain to him all my brilliant theories about the personality and essence and stuff. And every time I came up with one I thought was another brilliant idea, he would make it disappear. I'd be just in the cosmos again. And he had two hours till I was completely empty. And I said, gee, this is just like an actor. You see, the Eastern guys, they get empty by detaching, by letting go. But an actor, he gets empty by expressing. Whatever he's feeling, he expresses. But they still both have that emptiness as the place to work from. And so I wanted to make sure I could go to that place in everyday life. The thing about acting is it's not. What you find out when you get into acting, acting is being real. It's when you're not acting that you're pretending. You're presenting your personality, who you're going as. I'm a disimportant person. I'm a social person. That's not real. What's real is how you're really feeling for real. And that's so when you get on stage, you're just pretending you're pretending. The whole trick is how do you have a real feelings on stage? Get off stage and you can bullshit again. We call it social bullshit. So anyway, I got into acting, not to be an actor, but to act. That is to say, do not act, to learn. And that was one of the most valuable things I did. That's later, I ended up living with Karen Black for three years. And she taught me an awful lot too about not only living 24 hours a day in present time, which was, I have to say, exhausting in the beginning. I had to go home and rest every few days, but eventually I could do it without being exhausted because I'd left a lot of my ego behind. And I learned a lot from her in terms of how, uh, how to stay very present. And if you have to do a character, take a stab at it. John Voight, he worked the opposite way. He always built his characters very slowly. I still remember when we, he's before Midnight Cowboy, he was practicing tapping his foot out of tune with music. Because he has a scene in the shower where he has to keep time with the music and he misses all the time. <laughs> I remember he was very careful with the way he built the character before he really took the full stab at it. Karen was the complete opposite. She'd go full into the character and say, oh, you don't like that? Okay, here's another one. Wow. So he, she always took a full swing. I still remember, like Julie Christie was my dream girl. And without going to that, I actually ended up writing her a 20-page telegram. She actually came and looked me up. It was incredible. But anyway, this was much later. And Karen knew I liked Julie. She said, I can do Julie. She turned into Julie for a couple of days. That was really funny. And then I said, well, I like tough girls too. And she said, what? Who's a tough girl? And I said, that girl in Truck Stop Women. I forget her name now. And she said, oh, I can be tough. And man, she got so tough, I got scared. <laughs> really was scared. I thought I was in danger. It was like Nicole Williamson and Beaufort's gun. She was frightening. And uh, she was terrific. Now we've had Ed Pressman on the show a few times before. Can you tell the story of how you and Ed met and how you started to work together? The Vietnam War was on and anybody with half a brain knew that you shouldn't go to the war unless you wanted to write our generation as naked and the dead or something. 
like Oliver Stone. He went to Vietnam because he was going to write that novel. And we talked about it. And I was not going to go to Vietnam. And I knew I would not write that novel because of it. Anyway, so I'm in London. I'm at Cambridge. But most days I'm in London because my girlfriend, who turned out to be this heiress, had a big townhouse behind Harrods where I lived four days a week with her. So I was in London a lot. And uh, Ed was at London School of Economics, but really he was hanging around Columbia Pictures trying to learn how to be a producer. And we met at a Thanksgiving party because it was for my Harvard roommates were there. But Ed had been a friend of one of the roommates. They'd gone to Fieldston School together. So he was at the party. Anyway, he came up to me because by that time I made three short films at Harvard. And he came up to me at the party and says, I hear you make films. And in fact, I had taken all the money I had for the second semester and rented a camera and bought a roll 1,200 feet of color film. And I was going to shoot the next day this short, which would be 35 color. I'd only get one take for each shot, but I planned it out in my head. But anyway, I was at that party that night. He came up to me and he said, I hear you make films. And I said, oh, yeah, I made some shorts. He says, I tried to make films with my friends at Fieldston. The writer would argue with the director who would argue with the cameraman who would argue with it. And we never shot a put a film. Wow. And I said, I do all the jobs. The only person you have to talk to is me. <laughs> and he says, I said, in fact, I'm shooting tomorrow up in Cambridge. Come and you can come and watch. And we were shooting the big sex scene. It's by today's standards, it's not a sex scene. <laughs> you got to remember, this whole pornographic internet thing came meant decades later. Anyway, so he watched us shoot that. He loved it. And then he wanted to form a company right away to make movies. And he often took, because I didn't have enough money to develop the film or cut it or anything. I just, my whole principle was go start, go make your film. I have enough to rent the camera and buy the film, shoot it. Then you find out how you do the next step. And he said, okay, he would pay for the development of the film and the post-production. And, and he had a lot of connections. Ed, he, his family was fairly wealthy and they knew people, unlike my family. My father, when he, it's very funny, when he went on 57th Street to see the revolutionary movie director, a couple of years later, I said to him, I said, hey, daddy, you never told me whether you like Oh, no. What happened is he came to me. He said, I just saw your movie on television. It was terrific. I really enjoyed it very much. I said, well, how come you didn't say anything two years ago when you went to the theater to see it? And he said, tell you the truth, I was sitting in the theater, and he was a movie buff. And when it came on and said, directed by you, I just, I couldn't see the movie anymore. Just too overwhelmed. I was sitting in a movie theater watching a movie that you direct. So we had no connections. Ed had a lot of connections. They owned a big toy company. They knew people, United Artists, all kinds of things. So Ed came, he watched shooting. He wanted to have form a company. I had no money, even though I had a very rich girlfriend who said, don't form the company with Ed. He's not trustworthy. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't ask her for a loan. I, I needed some finance. And so I signed the paper. We made the movie called Girl. And the Beatles had a song out called Girl. And we went to see George Martin. Who was, but he said we couldn't afford the Beatles, but he had another little group that he'd let play with the song girl, which they did. And group called that's no longer existent. And we put it on the film. Anyway, it won the prize for best short dramatic film of the year at the American, what's it, the Golden Eagle Awards 
It was before the Academy had anything for shorts. So it wasn't a bad film. And that's, oh, and then so Ed said, he wants to make features. So I wrote a feature film called The Man Who Killed Man, all about a guy who lives in a, with a woman who lives on Park Avenue with the very wealthy people in New York. But every time he looks out the window, it's the Crusades. People are killing each other and fighting. Or it's World War One. People, every time he looks at another one, it's another war from history. And that living inside this very rich environment, he gets to avoid all that. And so it's pretty good. And Ed then took us to see David Picker, United Artists. And I never would have been able to get in there. And they wanted to buy it. Said, you can have it for free if I can direct it. And David Pick said, how old are you? I said, 21, 22. I forget. No, 22. And he said, I can't get you. My own board of directors is a $5 million film. Today, it would be like 25. We'll buy it. And I said, forget it. I walked out. And no, he said, David said to me, you don't know what a big mistake you're making. You better go talk to people. I just offered to buy your movie, United Artists. I said, I want to direct. And I walked out. And I came back a couple of weeks later, another, and now Tom Mankiewicz was there, his house intellectual. And the Mankiewiczs are a big Hollywood family. Oh, yeah. And he was a smart guy. Chris Mankiewicz, that's who it was, Chris Mankiewicz. And they said, gee, they really like this thing. They want to buy it. And I said, well, you're not getting it unless I direct. And they both looked at me and they said, are you serious? I said, yeah. They said, if you're really serious, why don't you go write a low-budget movie? And then maybe we can get you to direct. So anyway, I went off and I spent the John Avildsen, who was shooting pornos and commercials and industrials. And the mafia had given him some money to make a little adventure movie. And he offered to hire me for $100 a week to be his assistant. But I had to write my low-budget movie. So I ended up playing cards once a week to make my money. And I wrote out of it. And then I brought that into United Artists about a year later, had another meeting, the same as the first one. They said, we'd love to buy it. There's nothing. It was the first 50s film. It was before American Graffiti, Goodbye Columbus. It was before that. And I said, they'd like to buy it. It's a wonderful film, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, you can have it for nothing as long as I can direct it. And they said, how old are you? I said, 23. Right. I well, can't give you the thing. You're too young. <laughs> so... Ed said, I'll try to raise the money privately. So I had to spend a year waiting for Ed to try to raise the money privately. But he didn't try to raise it privately. He went to all the mo other movie studios, which took him a year. In the meantime, a documentary I had made at Harvard called Chanzo about life in this French village, like Stanley Kaufman, the New York film critic, showed it on his TV show in New York City. He had 15 minutes of George Roy Hill's Hawaii. And 15 minutes of my short film, Sean said mine was much better. So the next night I went down to HB studio because I thought I'd better learn about acting. Ed thought it was a good idea too. I learned something about acting before I direct the film. So I figured I'd study acting for you, but just not to act, but to learn how to deal with actors. And Herbert Berghoff was a friend of Stanley Kaufman's and he had seen the damn movie and heard that it was better than George Ray Hill. So. He took me over to his wife, Uta Hagen, and they took me under their wing for a year. Robert Duvall was doing stuff down there, and it was an incredible year. And Marty Scorsese, of course, was also running around at the same time, and we were friends. And 
when he decided we should go study with Haig Mnuchin at NYU, who was having the first graduate course in film at NYU history. And we, and we both decided to do that. And we both got in. We were the first two students to be admitted. But just then, Ed gave up. He couldn't get any major studio to put, give him any money. And his mother said she'd give me $80,000 to make the movie. So I told Marty I could go study. I was going to make my movie. And anyway, I just shot very quickly the first two weeks. Got way ahead of schedule because I was afraid they'd lose. They'd run out of money. But they really loved the first two weeks of stuff that I shot. And they said, slow down. We'll get you more money. So I ended up spending $132,000 and got it done. And of course, John Hamilton was the cameraman. And Michael Small was my music. We had all kinds of money. John Voigt was in it. And we had all kinds of wonderful people. And it was great. But it was very hard on me. I had no assistance. I didn't have a lot of help. When would you consider your first real film where you had those assistants? Were you able to flex your muscles a little bit more? Yeah. I think it only happened once because it didn't happen on Out of It. On The Revolutionary, Ed hired it. The assistant director stayed in the pub the first six weeks of the shoot. It was terrible. Finally, the director of photography got embarrassed to the English crew and said, look, we can't have this go on anymore. We really are more professional than this. So I had an AD for the last two weeks of the shoot. Terrible. And Ed was in New York. He wasn't even there. So I wasn't well handled. I wasn't helped a lot. And then I guess on dealing, I had a really good crew. A full crew. But you have to remember, by that time, I was pretty wigged out. I'd just been in North Africa with Eldridge Cleaver and the North Koreans planning a kamikaze attack on Manhattan. And the FBI and the CIA were after me. So when I went to New York, I was walking around with an attache case with $50,000 in traveler's checks. And I told everybody, when this flash of lightning comes on June 19th, which is when they were going to start shooting policemen, the Panthers in New York City. I was going to go to London and I'll wait at the Dorchester Hotel. But don't even look for me. I'm heading straight to the airport. Anyway, it was in that setting. And the FBI was talking to the secretaries and my friends. And then later I got on the Freedom of Information Act, the files. And that's something interesting. But anyway, John Cowley sent me the book, Dealing by John, Doug Crichton and his brother, Michael. And then it asked me if I want to do it. I didn't even read the book. I said, sure. I just figured they wouldn't arrest me if I was directing a big Hollywood movie. <laughs> so when I, so that movie was just, and then there was, a, I couldn't find a guy to play the lead. Basically all the biggest drug dealers in the country were coming to see me to tell me their stories. Cause I was doing the first dope movie and they'd give me the best weed they had cocaine. And I, I, I wasn't a doper. And so I smoked the weed. It was all bud and do some coke and I'd pass out. And I was in the Beverly Hills hotel and I was passing out after seeing every actor and I couldn't find anybody to play the lead. And then finally this young kid comes in. He's smart. He's clever. He can really play a Harvard guy. Hey, make the film work. He's great. I love him. And, and I said, okay, now the film can work. And I tell the kid, I say, look, I know this is going to sound stupid to you. I'm a big director and you don't have to be a nobody, right? But I'm telling you, you're great. Just like when I first met John Voigt, I knew instantly that he was a great actor. 
I feel the same way about you. So here's my telephone number. You call me on Monday and say, I'm the kid who came in, who you said was just like John Voigt when you first met him. I said, and now I'll hire you for the movie. And then some more dope to deal. I forgot about the kid. On Friday, Ed comes by and says, they're really upset at Warner Brothers. You haven't found anybody to play the lead and they're going to cancel the film. And I remember we walked up on the blue scaffolds or hang them high, the Clint Eastwood film. And I had this premonition that I was being hung. Anyway, and Ed said, we got it. We got to tell him who was playing the role. So I said, well, just sign the last guy who came in. He said, who is that? I said, I don't know. Call the secretary. And so it was a guy named Robert Lyons, who I like. Bobby Lyons is a wonderful actor and a good person. He's just not like a Harvard guy. And so I was like that. And then on Monday, this kid calls me on the phone. I said, yeah, what's your name? He said, Richard Dreyfus." I said, oh, no, I have made the biggest mistake of my life. I said that. I said, you come in anyway. I'm going to try to get you in the movie, get him to pay off the other guy. And John Lithgow was the guy I had for his roommate to play his roommate. And we flew to New York and did improvisations with John Lithgow for a week. They were brilliant together. And I came back to L.A. and I said, Ed, we got to pay off Bob Lyons. And he said, and Ed said, no. So anyway, that's the dealing story. So he was running from the FBI and the CIA and the Panthers. And they had this movie, and then I didn't get the people I wanted. But John Kelly was great. He gave me 12 weeks and a great crew. And was, the answer to your question, I had the great crew when I was not so great. Can you tell me the story of how the November Men came to be? My daughter, I became a Mr. Mom because her mother abandoned her when she was 12 because she was too big. She was bigger than her mom and stronger. Her mother couldn't discipline Anyway. So I was Mr. Mom, the laundrette chauffeur, taking care of my daughter. Anyway, since she was born there, all the presidents were Republicans. And I made the mistake of sending her to a little fancy private school because it was nearby and at the time. And her values got totally screwed up. She thought the best thing you could do in the world was to be a plastic surgeon. And she thought that Democrats were like criminals or something. And I thought this was terrible. This is just hard. I took her out of the school, and that's another story. But how did I come to make November? So then I decided to kill George H.W. Bush to show her. And also because I was fed up with the left anyway. The right didn't like it. They murder you. Martin Luther King, the Kennedys, whatever. And if you're a West, left wing radical, you become head of the English department. So... I thought I'm going to become first left-wing assassin and kill George Bush. And I had a friend at the time who had, I can't say this, but he was, he really was a tough guy my, from Brooklyn, who was my best friend. And I called him. I said, we're going to kill the president and uh, I need his help. And I still remember he had a fight with his wife because his wife said, you can't kill the president. It's against the law. And he said, I know it's against the law. No, no, no. Anyway, that's the first scene in the movie when they're arguing about it's being slow. And then Tom Hayden gave a speech at the local synagogue, which I photographed. And he gave a tremendously moving speech about how there was no left left. And I decided, I'm, I'm, I'll shoot Bush. That's all there is to it. So then the Watts riot started. And I heard that Bush was coming to LA. So I called the Secret Service at the White House. 
and said, I wanted to kill, I wanted to shoot George Bush. I didn't say kill George Bush, shoot George. And how, how do I go about doing that? And they said, you get a, put your corporate letterhead and ID, have IDs, and go to remote terminal three, it's seven o'clock in the morning. He's going to come in on a plane. They'll let you in there. So I made on my Mac, I made credentials and, oh, I just had to say that about two months or a month earlier, I'd written to the right White House asking to shoot Bush, saying I wanted to be that. And they'd written me back a letter on White House stationery, the White House signed letter saying no way in hell. But I had that letter. So anyway, now Bush is coming. I'm in, and I invented a company, Worldwide Communications, WWC. I put the things on the car and I had WWC IDs around my neck. And my girlfriend at the time looked like a Republican, tall, thin, blonde, blue-eyed, Nordic type, who was my camera person and definitely distracted people. So that was good. And so we drove out there. CBS was in front of us, NBC and CNN behind us. We were second car lines, WC. Oh, and so also that prior day, I memorize my lines for the assassin, the what he was going to say before he killed the president. Squeaky Fromm, she didn't know how to pull a gun. Sarah Jane Moore, blah, 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 blah. They killed our guys, that would kill theirs, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, now we go in to remote terminal three at 7 a.m. They unlock the doors. Everybody goes in. There's a staging area. They look at everything. They say, okay, now you go to the second staging area where they go through your cameras to make sure you don't have any guns. No. And once you're through with there, they go to now you have to go through the metal detectors and they inspect your credentials. And I walk in with Susan Emerson and we have our credentials. The Secret Service stops us. They said, hey, you're not allowed in here. You see these other people? That's the White House press corps. You see their IDs? That's not an ID. I said, oh, I understand. I'm sorry. Pull out this letter. I said, we have permission from the White House. And the guy looks at it, says the White House, and it's signed by the guy. And he said, all right. And he lets us in. He didn't bother reading the letter. So we get in and we stand in the little corral they had for the press people with an X on the floor on the tarmac. And then Air Force One comes into shot. Big production number. Air Force One is open. And the door is open and Bush comes down. He stands there. We get a great shot of him. And if he walks to the right, we'll get our shot when he's done because we'll be able to pan off him onto me. If he goes to the left, we got no shot. But anyway, while he's sitting there talking, they, Susan turns around, but just mouth the words and have my hand in the shape of a gun. And I'm just pretending, you know I'm saying, speaking from, she don't know. And the Secret Service are looking at me like I'm a crazy person, moving my lips and cocking a gun with my hand. My hand is a gun. And after a while, they start moving in. There's a suit coming from every direction. But I finished my dialogue before they got there and I put my hand down. I stopped talking. Then, Bush finished talking at the podium, this H.W. Bush, and walked this way. So Susan was able to pan off Bush onto me. I repeated my last line when she got to me so we could cut it off. And then I dubbed it later. Anyway, that was the beginning of the movie because I switched from trying to kill H.W. Bush to making a movie about killing H.W. Bush when I realized that yeah, I would die and that wouldn't be good for me or my daughter. So I might as well like a movie. That's amazing. Just, yeah, the production value of that, to know that you're going to shoot this the way that you shot it, the way that 
are mouthing the dialogue and then saying the lines later. So smart. <laughs> so funny. It was a I'm fearless. I'm not afraid. My friend, Jimmy, who's really a tough guy, he's really afraid of cops and secret service and stuff like that. But I always have my father. Nobody's, they were these guys. They're all, every, I, I get news here. Everybody's a kid. There are no adults. All the adults are playing being adults. They're really kids. I know that. So they don't bother. The only adult I really know is my father. If you've got that incredible scene with George H.W. Bush, do you say, okay, this isn't a good idea to assassinate the president. I'm just going to make a movie out of this. How do you go about doing the rest of it? Jimmy and I sat down and wrote the thing. But even there it was funny because Jimmy was a friend of Robert Davies and he was a friend of Schwarzenegger. And they were both over right wingers, really. And they thought in a movie called Mirage, I play a character. Anyway, Jimmy thought I was the world's last communist <laughs> and that nobody believed what I believed. And I had long scenes, the November men, where I gave some of it's left. I gave a few speeches, but I had, I had left those speeches in. Everything I said have, has come to fruition. <laughs> Everything. So anyway, basically, we just sat down, we wrote the thing, and then we shot it. What was the life of the movie once you were done with it? And the movie was done. I showed it to New Line and a guy named Olofsky. Or Lefsky or something said it was seditious and they couldn't do it. But Bob Shea was an old friend of mine and he started the company. So I called him up. I said, you got to look at this thing. So he looked at it. We had lunch. We ate our sandwiches in the Lionsgate screening room and he enjoyed it. And when it was over, he said, we can't, this, wait, this is, we're too big now. He says, this is, you needed us when we did reefer madness. <laughs> when they first, their first kind of distribution success 20 years earlier. So I can, and oh, and then what was it? Bill Clinton was giving a speech in San Diego. So I took the print of the, the VHS of the film down to San Diego. And I was trying to get the secret service to arrest me for having a film about killing the president. Couldn't get arrested. So anyway, back in those days, you could make money selling video abroad. You mm -hmm. went to Canada, Milan, and you sold the foreign rights. So we went to Cannes. I had the movie. And I would just walk around the Quasit and can telling everybody, I didn't tell them I was the director of the movie. I would just say to them, I saw the most incredible movie about telling George H. W. Bush. It's unbelievable. And I basically started rumors all over Cannes about how great the movie was. Then <laughs> the buyers all went to the guy, John Rodset, the foreign sales rep, to buy the movie. But Rod said, no, they, there are no names in it. It's just you and Jimmy. They all want, they need a name. So I said, that was Robert Davi. They, Rod, Robert Davi's great. He just done a James Bond movie. He was in another movie. He was big stuff at the time. So I had called Jimmy. Jimmy called Dolly. I spoke to Dolly. And I told him, look, would you shoot a couple of scenes with us when we get back so we can tell these guys in Europe that it's with Robert Davi too. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I got a couple of three conditions. One. Want a box of Cuban Romeo and Juliet cigars. In one scene, I want to be riding a horse. And the other scene, I want to be shooting skeet. I said, okay, no problem. And so we told everybody in Cannes that it was with Robert Dobby too. And we sold enough. So I got my money back. I hocked my house to make the movie. And when we got back to the States, I shot the scenes with Dobby. It was pretty funny, I thought.
<laughs> you make him the financier of the movie, but he says, don't tell Arnold. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny that, yeah, because he is so ultra right wing. And then even your old friend, John Voight, the path that he took afterwards. Whew. Oh, that's, that was way after mm-hmm. John and I were together. Yeah. I wasn't friendly with John after I went to LA. Oh no, I still, yeah, I still remember going to one of the last times I saw him, he was at the beach house in Malibu and he was sitting behind the desk and there was a wheelchair on the sitting there. And he said, oh yeah, they want me to do this movie, but I'm going to have to play it in a wheelchair. I said, are you kidding? You in a wheelchair with the Catholic guilt, you'll win, win an Oscar. <laughs> and so he did coming home and he won an Oscar. Mm-hmm. We just part after that. <laughs> yeah. Did I read that there's an alternate cut where you get to see what's being looked at through the scope and that it's actually yes. President Clinton? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a version where it's Clinton under the crosshairs, which would have been the ultimate irony of the left wing guy trying to assassinate the right winger. And then the right wing prop man gets the idea from this director and he decides to kill Clinton. <laughs> and it was very interesting because I'll just tell you the story. When it was came clear to me that Clinton was going to win the election, I realized we had to kill Clinton. And I heard he's coming to LA, but I called the secret service and they said, I got friendly with the secret service guys. I got some great secret service stories. Anyway, they said it's going to be impossible in LA. The security's too tight, but it's 6 AM in Portland, Oregon. He's giving a speech on the wharf. So we flew up to Portland. It was again, CNN, WCC. We were there to shoot Clinton and we got the shot, but, uh. It's very, there's another shot where you see the whole presidential motorcade come down. That's a million dollar shot with about 40 cars and 20 motorcycle policemen and all this kind of stuff. During the day, I knew he was in the Americana Hotel in Century City. And I went down into the Century City Mall, restaurant mall. I could spot this CIA guys really easily. Oh, the Secret Service. I'm very good at the CIA too later when I did the Pope movie. I got a bunch of CIA stories, but the secret service guys, you could spot them a mile away. And so I would go have, eat a hamburger or something with them and talk to them a little bit. And I said, well, listen, we're trying to get a shot for the movie, which, because I knew after he was going to leave the American hotel and go see Reagan, I didn't know what route they were taking. So I would know where to set up my cameras. And they said, and they told me something really interesting. They said, you want to know the truth? Number one, the president isn't in the presidential limo. He's in one of the back cars. We have two limos and he's in neither of them. (laughs) The second thing they said was, we don't know which way they're going. It's up to the driver in the lead car to decide which way he's going. And we all follow him. Wow. It's only at the very last minute that we know where we're going. And they put out the, because they had motorcycle guys block off the traffic in advance of the motorcade, but they only... There were two basic routes you could go, either south along the Olympic or north along the Southern Street. And they had cops at both places. So I just tried to imagine I was the driver at that time, five o'clock at night. I got to get to Reagan's from here. No way I'm going north. I'm taking Olympic. So I set up all the cameras in this parking lot of it. It was was raised up and we got the perfect angle. And lo and behold, they had come to the guys. We would have had nothing. Instead, we have the whole real presidential motorcade. 
Uh, and then, of course, the story is we're going to bomb him with a drone. Now, mm. nobody knew about drones back in 1994. Here we are, 2023. Everybody's talking drones. I had the first presidential assassination drone by 30 years. You managed to fool me so many times in the film, which <laughs> normally, if I'm watching a movie and I'm seeing something that I just can sniff out that it's not real, I'd be like, okay, this is the either dream sequence or somebody's going to yell cut. Like when they're telling the guy with the drill and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or the, when the first helicopter comes down. It's very interesting how well it's aged over the years, too. That was the first film with that 50 caliber sniper. And now it's a cliche in every adventure, any action movie, everybody's shooting his 50 millimeter sniper guns. There were no 50 millimeter sniper guns in movies before the November Men. I had a Marine Corps special weapons expert do, how would we kill the president? So we had a real 50 cal weapon there. I mean, there's two good stories that come from that. One, there was a big boat in the harbor of Cannes that was abandoned because they didn't pay the taxes. Anyway, the captain of that boat came to see me because he'd seen the November man at Cannes and he saw that we were using the right rifle and he was an SAS assassin. And he came to see me and I was having trouble with Pandora films because they were take, they were going to recut my movie and I'd take out all the political stuff out. And I, they had all the materials. They hadn't given me any money yet either. So this guy volunteered to kill the head of Pandora for me because they were in an office down the street. And I had to say, no, it's not, it's just a movie. <laughs> Don't tell the guy. And so he went off to fight as a mercenary in Kosovo. In that war, we ended up sending him gift packages. Then he got captured. I had to call the SAS in London. They pretended they didn't know him. The next time I heard from him, he was in Thailand working for the prince to get rid of the poachers of the tigers. And then he went dormant. I don't know what happened. But anyway, that was from the November men. But the other thing that happened, because there were shots of the Marines. You remember all those Marines? At, when Angola happened, when we were preparing to go to war in Angola, I ran down to Camp Pendleton with my fake IDs and I stole onto the base. Oh, wow. That's how much news put people down there. We were able to get onto the base and I'm shooting all the, hey, oh, oh, hey, oh. that was all real Marines. Oh, and real wow. Army. I wondered how you got that. Mm. Wow. And most of my crew was frightened to death, but I don't know. Is there something wrong with me? I don't get frightened. So you've never directed, as far as I know, a sequel to anything, but I hear there might be a sequel to your book. Is that true? It's not a sequel. What is it? I only put in the book vignettes, which took the reader on the search for essence and to overcome the personality. So it was really, if a story didn't help tell us, I left it out. But that's like a 200 pages of great Hollywood stories that I did not include. And then this same guy, Paul Cronin, who read my manuscript and sent it to Screen Classics, who published it, I told him I had a storeroom in, in Oxnard filled with stuff. And he's a real historian. He couldn't believe it. He flew out, spent days in the storage room, read all this stuff from the, the CIA letters, the FBI letters. Pictures that I'd taken, articles I'd written, interviews I'd given, stuff like that. And 
he was, it was like for him, a treasure trove for a historian. For me, it was just compulsive works of an egomaniac. Anyway, he got very excited about it. And so he put together this graphic picture book you know, with all kinds of graphic, all the pictures I took as a youngster and older, because I was a pretty good photographer, and essays I wrote, and the lots of stories I didn't put in the book, in the memoir. And he's publishing in the next few months, and he didn't have a title for it. I said, I'm good on titles. I came in the movie business, there's E and O insurance. There is an omission. So, you know, so I said, call the book instead of errors and omissions. Call it, for example, there's a story where all of I'm sitting, I had part of the story where Oliver Stone and I are sitting around doing coke and he, we're talking about why we, I didn't go to Vietnam and he did and about the naked and the dead. And he tells the story about how he and his friend would sit on the riverbank with their night sight sniper scope and shoot the Viet Cong across the river. And when the bullets smacked into the people, it would knock them back 10 feet. And that all that would be left would be the dust that had been on their clothes. So it looked like a ghost. And I tell that story, that vignette, right after I tell the story of my father dying. So there really was a point in telling that story there. Now, I didn't tell the rest of the story, which Oliver told me, man, when they were in Vietnam and you had to go attack those Viet Cong villages, and you went charge and everybody jumped out with their guns shooting. They all had erections and had spontaneous ejaculations. Who knew? Have you ever heard such a thing? No. Okay. That's the first-hand report from Oliver. Now, I didn't put that in the book, but it's a great part of the story. It's in the second book. And I told him, call the second book Emissions, Omissions, and Illustrations. <laughs> Paul Williams anthology. And so that's what it's going to be. That's fantastic. Mr. Williams, you've been so generous with your time. I don't want to take up your entire evening. (laughs) I hope we can do this again sometime because this was such a pleasure. Listen, it was great to do it. It really was. You're a sweetheart, actually. are back and we're talking about the November men, but really more than that, I think we should discuss Paul Williams a little bit. And really, other than that, I would like to know a little bit more if you guys have been able to glean the release history of this. We mentioned before the break, this whole idea of changing the ending to meet the distributor, but there was a distributor. What happened with this movie? Why do we not know about this at all? So they took it to con and they got... A promise of some kind of distribution, but they needed to add a star. And that's when they went back and shot the Robert Dobby stuff. And then they took it to Roger Ebert's film. Roger Ebert had a film festival in Chicago and they took it there and it was a huge success. According to Paul, it, it, it got a lot of buzz at con and then it had a really big 
opening in Chicago and the person who the, they, so they got a distributor and they were invited to be at the first or the first or the second Sundance film festival. And the distributor was like, nah, like that's a waste of, that's a waste of our time and money. And instead of going large with it, they sold all the rights on the cheap. I don't think it was to troll me. It was to somebody else. And then that led to trauma. But basically, according to Paul, they had this big possibility. And instead of sending it to Sundance, they released it in like on a couple of drive-in movies, theaters, and a couple of drive-ins in the Southeast or something, and nothing happened with it. And then it just went straight to video. The notion of, forget, what is this little Sundance thing? Let's open it at a mall in Denver or something like that. It would be better off there. It's that kind of thing. So it's a bit unfortunate. Yeah. It got very, one indication of the extensiveness or otherwise of this film's releases. If you look at the local newspapers of the time, it played a few, but, but it got no reviews essentially, which is a dead giveaway. It didn't get an extensive review. No one believed in it. No one cared about it. I fairly certain this is correct in the book that he did actually amazingly make his money back on the film. By the way, it should be said he, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say he mortgaged something or other, but he used his own money to make this film. That's how much he believed in this film. Now, one might say that's a really stupid thing to do. And you might be right, but he did make his money back on this film, as I recall. Because of the release of the book, there have been a couple of retrospectives and we got to see a 35 millimeter print of the film that there is a 35 millimeter print of the film that exists. And we got to see it at the Roxy Theater in New York and it looks great. I think it was one of the ones I shipped back from the storage unit. But anyway, it's at the Harvard Film Archive. Yes. We did a actually quite an extensive Paul Williams retro. He came up from his home in Brazil. This was, when was this, last month? Was this April? April. Uh, uh, end of March. End of March. And uh, Paul came to New York, and I drove him out to Massapequa, his old stomping ground on Long Island. That was fun. I just take him around the old haunts having him introduced the films. It was great. It was good having him around. They showed Out of It, 35 millimeter of Out of It, The Revolutionary of November Men and of Mirage and a non-35 millimeter screening of Dealing. I couldn't find a print of Dealing. Staggering, really. It, is Dealing even available regularly? Because I know his movies for a while were very tough to find. There is a DVD of it. But apparently there's no print to be had, or at least not that they'll give out, which is a, it's a studio film. Larry Karaszewski is working on setting up, a, trying to set up a screening at the DGA of Dealing next year. So maybe he'll be able to track down a, a print. I was really hoping that there would be more in Paul's book about this particular movie, but he, I mean, it, there's a few pages worth of stuff. A lot of the anecdotes that we've talked a little bit about on the show, but he keeps things moving. It's such a steady clip in his autobiography. I mean, my God, just, it is so readable. I picked it up one night a few weeks ago and before I knew it, I was on page 50 and the next night I'm on page 100. It just moves so fast and he just is so entertaining these stories are great the, the elliptical style of his writing is not to everyone's tastes but it works for me and it worked for his story i think 
it's a very kind of idiosyncratically written book to a certain extent anyway. And my understanding is that he, like, it was a much longer book. He cut it down and then cut it down. And a lot of what he cut out, he, he basically cut out a lot of the Hollywood stories and a lot of production stories in favor of the story he wanted to tell of more of a spiritual journey through from Harvard to Hollywood to Hitman to Holy Man. But Paul Cronin and Paul Williams have been working on a follow-up book that is that indulges a lot more of our desire for the film. It's going to be great, this book. I've never done a book like it. It's a very interesting interplay between word and image because we've got these things that Andros was talking about that were removed for whatever reason from the first book. And I edit them down. And I'm not using all of them, but there are some great vignettes in that material that never made it into book one and we're putting it in book two along with all these documents and photographs for example in the as in the car out to massapequa i'm just remembering this he started talking about when he was at harvard one year a i think it was a supreme court justice came to speak either to the undergraduate school or the law students must have been the undergraduates because this speaker talked extolled the virtues of law school and was trying to essentially get all these undergraduates to go to law school after they graduated and Paul talks about basically standing up and in the middle of this crowd asking this guy a question and essentially questioning the very utility or the very moral kind of fabric of law school. And he sits down. And so that, that vignette will appear on, pa- on the left-hand side of the page. And on the right-hand side of the page will be a beautiful scan of the, immaculate, the immaculately kept letter that Paul has, his rejection from Harvard Law School. No, I beg your pardon. I'm so sorry, Paul, if you ever listen to this. His acceptance into Harvard Law School, and he a, a, an offer that he ended up never taking up. He did not go to a law school. It's quite an achievement to get into Harvard Law School. Paul did it and decided not to go. Thank God. That's one reason why the book is interesting. It's this image and word interplay, as I say. So many interesting photographs that he kept and took. He was a, a very good still photographer. In fact, we haven't talked about any of this, but his early films, his short films rely to a large extent on still photographs and they're very good i like his shorts i've always liked that kind of legity approach to using stills and moving images in a motion picture and yeah his stuff i haven't seen those early shorts but they sound fascinating and i really hope that they get released at some point released we'll probably i'll ask him if i can stick them on youtube let's see what's going to happen they do have ed Pressman's name on them actually so who knows? Ed, Ed, Ed Pressman's first production company was the one he formed with Paul in New York, I'm going to say in 1967. That leads to the, one of the things that I think Paul and I are both interested in correcting as far as the historical record. If you look at IMDb, the films that were produced by Pressman Williams do not include a credit for Paul Williams as a producer which is crazy. So we produced, he's one of the producers on Badlands. He was the one who found Terrence Malick, who brought him to Ed Pressman. He also was a producer. He was the guy who found De Palma, brought him to Ed Pressman. And that's, and they produced Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise together. And the fact that Paul has been written out of film history. There's, I've got documents, Pressman William documents. It's very interesting, the array of films that were on their slate. They were basically invited to come in-house at 
was it Fox? I'd have to check. My memory is so terrible about these things. But there were offers from big studios that they'd be an in-house independent group. Adras and I were talking earlier about this idea that we're lucky to have tapped this interesting story and be able to help tell the story, Paul's story, because it's not often someone of that. I think someone as interesting as Paul shows up who really is so unexplored. But as I always say, Paul's been hiding in plain sight for many years if you have a Badlands poster on your wall. And it says Pressman Williams on that poster. You know, everyone, the problem being that everyone thought it was the other Paul Williams. This is where Andres gets the name of his podcast. And Paul writes about this. And in fact, as I recall in Tarantino's book, at least three times, possibly even four, every time he mentions our Paul Williams, he has to make it very clear that he's not talking about the small, the diminutive singer-songwriter, as he puts it endlessly. So there's this, Andres plays with this on his, uh, the name of his podcast, which is a, a good name because there are at least two other Paul Williams that I can think of as well, in the, who was somewhat in the public eye around the same time. The editor of Crawdaddy Magazine, and there's a, the famous architect. I'm sure there are plenty more. I'm sure we probably all know Paul Williams. I don't know how anybody mixes somebody's name up with somebody else's name. It just seems so bizarre. It never happens to me. But, and, and yeah, I actually, I changed my name early on when I was in like second grade. So I also feel that pain of, I could have been someone with a much more unique name than what I have right now. And Paul did the same thing. Paul Williams had the same thing. Although he didn't change his name. His dad made him change his name because they wouldn't accept Jews. He felt like nobody would accept Jews at Harvard. And then he gets there and there's 400 Jews out of 1,200 students. That was amazing. Your article, by the way, Paul, is terrific. How did that come to be? I'm sure you've written for Sinise before. That, that was just something that needed to be written. I knew the book was coming. So it's an article that was Sinise published in the last issue. It's a four or five page article about Paul. It's going through. In fact, it does list some of the unmade projects that Preston Williams are going to work on. It's all about Howard Hughes with John Voigt. The irony of that, too, we, I mentioned Robert Davi earlier. Just that John Voigt was in all of these more revolutionary left-wing films, and he has completely left that behind. If you look at Voigt's character in Out of It, he, it's a sort of conservative character. He's a sort of beach blonde bully. In the revolutionary, it's almost as if he's a faux revolutionary. One, he's certainly on the left. Or one senses he's not even actually that political. He's very well-meaning, that character. But he's extraordinarily naive and not wildly intelligent. He just follows his emotions, which if that's what Paul's film is about, that's enough as a representation of those politics. It's a fascinating, nuanced representation of what goes on, what went on back then. I think John Voigt does it very well. Supposedly, according to Paul, he wanted John Voigt to play the lead in Out of It, which I think would have been terrible. I love what Barry Gordon does, and I think, but watching Out of It and watching John Voigt's performance in it as that, the tough football guy, he has some moments that are just phenomenal. There's a great scene. There's a great, I, one of my favorite things for actors is just subtle little physical moments that feel like they must have happened in the moment. You couldn't really think of them. My favorite is Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire when he, he's taken out 
Blanche Dubois boas out of her suitcase. And there's a little feather that's flying through the air. And while he's talking with her at one point, he just picks one of those feathers out of the air. And while in the middle of, of a monologue, and I'm like, oh, that's just a pure real moment that happens there. And there's a great little moment and out of it when John Foyd is at hot dog stand with his girlfriend who is flirting with the Barry Gordon and they're fighting a little bit. And he has a hot dog, puts the mustard on his arm and he wipes the hot dog on his arm and then eats it. You can see he's a special actor. What he became, who knows? But at that time, he was truly onto something as an actor. It's so interesting you mentioned that Brando bit with the feather, because I know exactly what you're talking about. And that was very clearly, obviously, the laws of physics suggest that was pure accidental. And he did intuitively respond to that. But the big question, as far as I can see, is the glove sequence in on the waterfront when he picks up her glove and puts it on. Was that planned? Because when you look at the way he drops the glove, it could have been very carefully planned, or it could just be an accident. That is that the one everyone talks about, and that's why I always think about the the one from Streetcar because the feather is a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. You can't fake that. If I were to look at the entire filmography of Paul Williams, would there be even more hot dogs in other movies? There, I bet there's a hot dog in Nunzio. If there's not, there's got to be. There were plenty of hot dogs on the set. I'm sure. In the the Amazing Life of Marcello the Cat, I, perhaps I don't know. I can't speak to the hot dogs in the work of Paul Williams. So it's my, I'm working on the PhD thesis with that title, but I haven't done any research yet. Uh, but yeah, I'm really glad you, you've enjoyed the book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen and Holy Men. I know Paul would want us to say the title like five times and encourage people That's to right. purchase That's it. Right. It's definitely very worth your while to pick that up. And it's available on paperback, Kindle, very easy to get now. I don't, sorry, I don't think, I think weirdly enough, they only did a hardback. Hardcover? Okay, I so just so. hardcover it? I'm not even oh, sure. Oh, okay. I've got the advanced reading copy, so that's a paperback. So yeah, hardcover and Kindle then. This is the one thing we didn't really touch on in this, and I think it's one of the most important things that the book does for those of us who are interested in the history of New Hollywood, is it shows how important Paul was at the beginning of that, that he... Before Coppola got to make his movie, before anyone else got to make their movie, he managed to come out and get his movie made. And even though he shot it in 67 out of it, and it only came out in 69, during those two very important years in the birth of New Hollywood, Paul was right at the center of all of it. And as each new young guy came out, Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, they all were pushed off and like, you got to talk to this Paul Williams guy. He's the one if you're, you don't talk to the, the old executives, talk to the young guys. And the young guy that they sent them to was Paul. And he played a very, an encouraging and a supportive role in all of those careers. And it is, as you get to know, as you get to know Paul through his book, or as we got to know him in person, he is a very, the things he's interested in are not self-aggrandizing. You can see him being the person who's, oh, you want to do this? Here, I'll help you connect with this person. I'll help you connect with that person. 
just following the flow of inspiration. And a lot of that history left him in the dust. You can see a, a, a more selfish and self-aggrandizing person would have been making the film of the November men about a Hollywood director from the sixties who got screwed over by all of his old pals who went on to much more successful careers. Instead, he's trying to correct history, the uh, history that is bigger than him. It falls to people like me and Paul to try and correct the smaller history, which is if you're a fan of new Hollywood, you would, have to learn about this guy, Paul Williams, if you want to understand that time and those people. I think. It felt like every time I turned a page, I'd be like, oh, he knew this person too? Oh, he knew this person? And it feels like he was like the Zelig of New Hollywood. And he's making films as early as De Palma and Scorsese. But for whatever reason, and he had a good run. He had some bad luck, though, as Andros has made mention specifically out of it was shot in 67 but at them it was about to be released and then john voigt got midnight cowboy and united artists decide oh we'll wait to see how midnight cowboy does and then we'll release out of it and paul implored them don't wait two years to release this film it is a now film it will be out of date if it comes out next year or in 90 or even later and they didn't listen to him and it pretty much died a death at the box office the revolutionary, he was on similar territory insofar as the politics of the moment were moving so quickly that a film that was written in 1968 and shot in 69 and released in 70 or thereabouts, even quite seriously, if you were shooting at the end of 69 and you were releasing in the fall of 70, there's a political change that the p- political winds are blowing in any, di- any number of directions. And so there's a sense that the revolution was out of, out of date by the time it comes out. He's involved with politics so deeply that when dealing is offered to him, he has to get out of New York and just goes to Boston and Vancouver, I think it was, to make that film. He, his heart was never really in filmmaking. I think, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I can't even remember the name of my cineast article. I think it's called The Reluctant Filmmaker or something like that. There's an idea that Paul Williams is a, actually a great, strong filmmaker, but his heart was never really in it, certainly not compared to Martin Scorsese, with whom he knew at, at NYU, albeit briefly in, I think, 1966, something like that. We're lucky to have those Paul Williams films, and we're lucky to have Paul's book, and uh, I'm lucky to have cracked open this storage unit. It's, it's full of great riches, which I'm putting into this book, which will be out very soon. Glad we didn't finish it, because then that New Haven footage showed up. And I get some sequences of that in the book. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I've been uh, chasing this guy ever since I joined the force. He, he has no conscience, and he, uh, he shows no, no remorse. He's the mastermind behind numerous bombings and political assassinations. He... Uh, it's a felony list a mile long, murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every, every mannerism, facial tick gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. 
I will become him. terrorism for hire will blow some shit up it's more fun plan b let's just kill each other That's right. We are kicking off Sci-Fi July with John Woo's Face Off. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts Andras and Paul. What have you been up to lately, sir? As I said, I've been working on finishing up the fourth season of The World is Wrong podcast with exploring the world of Paul Williams. And for our fifth season, I'm not quite sure. It's going to be a bit of a grab bag. There are some interesting interviews that I have that are are coming in. And I recently released on the World is Wrong feed an interview that I conducted in 2019 with Lily Gladstone, who's the star, one of the stars of Killers of the Flower Moon. She was a guest on my Radio 8-Ball podcast, asking questions to the Pop Oracle on that show. We answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards. And she was on as a act as an actress friend of our musical singer or musical guest who they worked together on land rights issues in Missoula. And and then obviously obviously this week she really had her coming out at Con and this seems like the breakout star of that film. And so we re-released that and that's available on our feed. I just finished up an album I've been working on for eight years. I'm a musician as well and a songwriter, and the record's called Recognize, Deescalate, and Decode, and that should be available in the fall. And Paul Cronin and I have been talking about some collaborations that I'm very excited about, and maybe since they involve film and film artists, I think that it might be something that your audience will be interested in. And unfortunately, I can't talk about it in much depth right now but very exciting stuff to talk about coming down the pipe early early stages early stages i won't ask you about that paul but i will ask you what other things have you been up to it sounds like you're neck deep in more paul williams stuff but what else are you do you have going on the paul stuff's nearly finished just working on various books and films that's what i do i mentioned some brian de palma material which is definitely coming together in an interesting way. Two, possibly three books. Some material about a guy I've been working on for many years, Alexander McKendrick, British-American filmmaker, sweet, made Sweet Smell of Success, 1957. So just getting on with things. Plenty, plenty going on. What, about, what have you been working on with Werner Herzog? But I've known Werner for a long time. Doing a, I think... Oh, I'm not sure how, what the hell. We're doing a book for Tashin. Oh, nice. So one of those big photo books. Again, early stages. Haskell Wexler. How about the Haskell Wexler stuff? The Haskell stuff was done years ago. Sorry, I'm projecting into the future here, but I 
worked with Haskell for years, made a documentary about Medium Cool, did an audio commentary for Criterion about Medium Cool, that kind of thing. Writing a, try and just write a book about Medium Cool. Oh, that's, yes, one thing about November Men, which is interesting, completely coincidentally for me, because it deals with the late 60s political era, but it also deals with this fascinating moment of cameras and filmmaking and films about cameras and stories about filmmaking. There are many examples of this that take place at the time, but for me, they all kind of stem from medium, medium cool is this linchpin film. The boat, the E. Claire cameras that they use in November, man, these great, they look like they're from the late sixties. I don't know how old those cameras are, but I'm fairly certain I spotted the Eclair cameras in November Men, and those are the ones that Haskell shot. I held in my hand Haskell's Eclair camera one time. That was fun. Very heavy machines. So, yeah, Werner, Haskell. I just connect with people and introduce myself. I'm going to prompt you for one more thing. Can you talk a little bit about what you're working on with the CalArts, Star Wars? So Alexander McKendrick was a filmmaker for many years and then in 1969 became the founding dean of the film school at CalArts, the California Institute of the Arts, where he taught for many years, where one of his famed students was Mr. Jim Mangold, whose Indiana Jones film just premiered at Cannes. And so McKendrick's film school starts more or less in 1970. And there's a very interesting and seemingly unexplored connection between and i've done a lot of interviews on this and put together a little short book which is coming out about just conversations with the students of the film school at CalArts, who later went to work shortly thereafter upon graduation went to work at ilm industrial light and magic the special effects production company that george lucas created to make star wars and uh, including one robbie blaylack who unfortunately passed away last year who won an Oscar for this. And there's some fascinating, just very briefly, there was an optical printer at the film school at CalArts, and many film schools, which is to say probably most film schools, did not have optical printers. I talked to someone just the other day who swears that he got there were film students from USC and UCLA who would drive up to CalArts to try to use the optical printer because there wasn't one on their campuses. And that optical printer was at the center of a lot of very interesting experimental filmmaking at CalArts for several years. Now, one doesn't necessarily know the names of these filmmakers. As it were, for those in the know, they've seen the animation of someone like Adam Beckett. Adam Beckett's a fascinating character. There's a whole book about Adam Beckett. I'm not telling you anything that you can't find online. You can also find some of his extraordinary animations online. But as I recall, when, C3, when R2-D2 gets shot and you see that electricity around him, Adam Beckett did that. So these CalArts students who had somehow been trained to think outside the box, which is more or less what Lucas needed at ILM, were recruited. It, it all comes, what goes around comes around because, of course, who now owns the Star Wars IP and who owns CalArts? So if you go to the CalArts website, you can buy CalArts, the Star Wars love, Star Wars. You've got CalArts, so you can buy all this Star Wars inflected CalArts me merchandise. It's all a bit weird, but I don't think anyone really knows. I, I, it, some of these people have since died that I've talked to, but there's a very interesting unexplored connection between the early CalArts film graduates at Star Wars. Anna actually tr 
Empire Strikes Back. As I recall, Pat O'Neill, who is in his early 80s now and was a teacher and would teach the optical printer, Pat worked on Empire Strikes Back. It stands to reason. They needed, if you see Pat O'Neill's films, he's an experimental, one doesn't want to call him an animator. They're much more interesting than that. You can go online and watch some of his films. Oh, I tell you, I was at the, I was in LA a couple of weeks ago at the 50th anniversary CalArts celebration. And I bumped into a guy called Larry Cuba. I'll bet you've seen a Larry Cuba film. In Star Wars, that digital kind of schematic of the Death Star they watched at the end, that was done by Larry Cuba. And Larry was a film student at CalArts. I really don't know this history well enough, but I would suggest to you that might be the first kind of mainstream injection of digital, the first time in a mainstream Hollywood film you've seen digital animation. I could be way off there, but it's certainly there's something interesting going on. Anyway, so Larry Cuba was there. So, yeah, there's an interesting connection between uh, these exper- high experimental filmmakers who've come out of this rather weird film school, and they end up going to work on the most populist film franchise in, in, in human history. It just goes to show what everything joins up in the end. It's not far radical experimentalism on one side and traditionalists on the other joins up in the end. They, one becomes the other. Anyway, so that's what CalArts is. One small part of the McKendrick story at CalArts. Pat O'Neill was there because of the optical printer, and the optical printer was there because when Pat says, yes, I'll come and teach at CalArts, but I need there to be an optical printer, Alexander McKendrick said, which one do you want? I'll buy it for you. If McKendrick hadn't have done that, there would be no Star Wars. I'm just kidding. You get the idea. And I, I want to prop one more thing. There's a connection here between the two of you. Mike, I saw you post about a month ago about your, about your love of a book called Film as a Subversive Art. And I love your documentary, Paul. Oh, you've seen it. Okay, good. I was going to say, Paul was a, played a major role in the creation of that book. Not the creation. So the book was published in the early 70s. But when I got to know the author, Amos Vogel, 25 years later, more or less around the turn of the millennium. It occurred to me, as it had done many people, that this book was long out of print. This is a remarkable book. Photos and text, broadly speaking about what we might non-mainstream cinema, a survey of it, a snapshot in the early 70s, and a historical look back as well. But the book was out of print. I called up random. I basically got the rights back from the publisher on behalf of Amos, and I called up Random House in New York, and they sent me the original layouts of the book. It was remarkable. And so we, we did a 2005 reprint of the book based on those plates. But what they did two years ago was they resourced all the imagery and retypeset the book. It's an absolutely beautiful achievement. And there were lots of corrections that they made. Anyway, so that you may have... How did you come across the book, Mike? Was it recently? Well, no, I've been... I think I got that for my 21st, 22nd birthday. And yeah, it's one of those, it's been thumbed through so much like midnight cinema type of book. And yeah, just one of my things for years was trying to track down so many of the movies that were in there just because you just see a still image and you're like, what is the movie that this is from? I have to see this movie. So that helped me turn on to Teriyama and a whole lot of filmmakers that I just never would have experienced otherwise. He's a remark- he was a remarkable guy, Abbas Vogel. He founded the New York Film Festival 10 years before he wrote that book, and 10 years before that, 
or 15 years before that, had set up a film club in New York at a moment to screen independent cinema at a moment when people had no concept probably of what independent cinema was. Cinema was cinema. But Amos was quite dogged in showing the world, certainly downtown New York, that there was a lot more to cinema than, than Walt Disney. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available over at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Gotta choose Moses or Dylan. That's right, it's either Dylan or Moses. Don't fight, you can look him up all you like and make up your own prognosis about Woody and Mia. Me and Woody. And then we cry out collectively. What about Sun Yi? She's married happily as can be. While Sinatra's baby's on network TV. Some twisted sequel to that film by Polanski. Shot in the Dakota. But they just had to wait For Dylan Moses